You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. I wonder where you were going. Mulholland Drive. That's where I was going. Mulholland Drive. I had a dream about this place. Tell me. There is no band. And yet, we hear a band. Diane? Camilla. Diane, the car's waiting. This is the girl. This is the girl. The history of the world. You're too busy being smart, Alec, to be thinking. Get out of the car. I mean, I just came here from Deep River, Ontario, and now I'm in this dream place. Someone is in trouble. Something bad is happening. Could be someone's missing, maybe. That's what I'm thinking. Diane Selwyn. Maybe that's my name. Silencio. Silencio. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Jedediah Ayers. There's sometimes a buggy. Also joining us this week is Mr. Eric Marshall. You will see me one more time if you do good. You will see me two more times if you do bad. This week we are looking at the film Mulholland Drive from writer-director David Lynch. Originally intended as a television show, it was a pilot that never aired before getting a new life as a feature film that went on to co-win Best Director for Lynch at the Cannes Film Festival, and recently has been named one of the best films of the, well, if not the best film of the 21st century. So we will probably be getting into spoilers, or maybe not. We'll definitely be breaking down the narrative and talking about some, shall we say, potential interpretations of the film we might spoil it for you we might not so go ahead uh if you haven't seen Mulholland Drive yet it's going to make a lot more sense if you listen along at home if you've seen the movie so I would highly recommend checking that out before you listen to the rest of this podcast so Jedediah when was the first time you saw Mulholland Drive and what did you think well I saw it uh theatrically Uh, I was really looking forward to uh the tv show uh i was a big david lynch fan at that point and so when i heard it was canceled i read some interview with him and i was very disappointed when it came out as a as a movie i made sure to go out and see it right away but i loved it i thought it was great but i thought uh honestly i thought uh it it seemed like an echo of lost highway which was is probably my favorite uh david lynch film so it seems like kind of almost a gentler kinder version of the same kind of stuff he was doing in that one. So, How about you, Eric? Oh, yeah, I also saw it theatrically. I didn't know what to expect. I had, I had seen Lost Highway, and uh, I agree with Jed that it did seem a lot like almost a continuation of, of Lost Highway, although uh, Lost Highway was much grittier. But yeah, I remember seeing it in the theater and thinking, leaving, going, I have no idea <laughs> what what I just saw, but I know I liked it. <laughs> That's all I could think of at the time when I first saw it. And I still think that. I still don't know what's going on, and I still like it. I actually saw the pilot version of this before I saw the feature film. I 
managed to get my hands on the pilot somehow. I, I think I've told the story on the show before as far as getting the uh, Phantom edit and that costing me a, a little bit of change and kind of being pissed off about that. And then I also bought, had to buy the Mulholland Drive TV pilot and that cost me a little bit of money and that kind of pissed me off. So then I ended up kind of like parlaying that anger into a successful uh, gray market bootleg business uh, called Super Happy Fun. So I kind of have David Lynch to thank for uh, Super Happy Fun in a way. <laughs> I saw this pilot several times, enjoyed it, was always curious about where it was going to go from where it ended up leaving us. And when they announced it as being a feature film, I was really curious how they're going to take that and parlay it into something else. And I uh, saw it at the, the Toronto Film Festival. So it was, what, six months out from it, getting at the big hoopla at Cannes. And the first time I saw it, I have to say, I was kind of unimpressed. I just was kind of like you guys. I thought it was kind of like a a shadow of lost highway and not necessarily as good. And I kind of thought it was being like artsy for artsy sake. I, it's funny because I don't necessarily remember not liking it that much. But then when I was talking to somebody at NoirCon over the weekend, they're like, Oh yeah, I remember you not liking it that much. And I was like, really? I didn't. Okay. And I guess it's just kind of grown on me as the years have gone by, but I will say that it really wasn't until I don't know, six months ago when I rewatched it right around the time I was starting to prepare for the Vertigo episode that we did, for some reason it kind of clicked and I really started to appreciate Mulholland Drive a little bit more. I don't think it was that people are naming it the best film of the uh, of the 21st century. I think it was actually like a week or two before all those stories started breaking. Something hit me at that particular point and I started to come around to this film a little bit more than I had. And it's funny that it only took me, what, 15, 16 years for me to finally kind of come to terms with Mulholland Drive and start to enjoy it for what it was. Somehow in that uh, story, you ended up being much cooler than any of us and far behind the curve. I do have to say it's, it was really fascinating for me to see what the pilot had become because I was so familiar with the pilot and going in and the, the movie starts with a scene that's not in the pilot. It starts with the whole jitterbug thing, which just really kind of took me by surprise. It's just like, what the hell is this? Because you know, we, we didn't have the, the party scene at the end where Betty talks about how she won this jitterbug contest. So I had no idea what was going on when the credits start or right before the credits and just all of this nutsy stuff with the jitterbug contest happening. And then the old people, like I, you know, kind of knew who they were and everything, but they're there at the jitterbug contest or so it seems. So I was just like, whoa. But I think the jitterbug contest does a pretty good job of kind of setting up for us what's going to happen later on. It's really got a good visual metaphor as far as all of these multiple images of these same, say, handful of couples all jitterbugging, and some of them are small, some of them are large, some of them are just in silhouette, and so it's kind of these shadows of these different people, and they're multiple versions of the same characters up on screen. So I think it's kind of Lynch's first, you know, kind of nod of the hat to say, there's going to be multiple versions of people as you go through this story. In pairs. Yeah, it's just kind of like a, like a prelude, right? It tells you what's going to happen if you're paying attention. 
Right. Instead of going, what is going on? Which is basically what everybody does, right? The pilot starts more with that next section mm-hmm. where it's going down Mulholland Drive and you've got, shall we call her uh, Rita? Let's call Lara Elena Haring uh, Rita uh, for the most of this discussion. We'll call Naomi Watts primarily Betty, though at some points I think we might slip and call her Diane. But really, I think, you know, the Betty character, is, the, the Betty character is much more of a distinct character to me as opposed to the way that Rita kind of morphs into Camilla because we don't ever really get to know Camilla that much. I guess she's more of a chameleon, but we don't really see too much of her. She's more, we more know her as Rita, I think. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think that we mostly see, oh my, I'm already confused. Um, uh, Laura Herring as Rita, right? And later on when she is Camilla, it it's, I agree. We'll say Rita for Laura Herring mostly and Betty for Naomi Watts until it gets more confusing, which it will, obviously. But yeah, the pilot starts more with that scene of them coming down Mulholland Drive and the the limo driver stopping and and, uh, Rita saying, we don't stop here. And then this car crash happening on Mulholland Drive, killing most people. Uh, (laughs) It kind of reminded me of, you know, we talked a lot over the weekend, uh, Chad, about um, Wild at Heart. And it kind of reminded me of that car that they come along come onto on the freeway where we see um Sherilyn Fenn and she has her death scene uh, and Wild at Heart and it seems like she has been uh, a victim of a car crash uh, she doesn't end up as as uh, lively as Rita does unfortunately but you know I think that car crashes and Lynch films are it's that randomness of life that I think he kind of enjoys especially that kind of craziness of just cutting to those cars with the teenagers sticking out the top and just screaming their lung, lungs out I love how it's just just kind of uh, insanity that we get ejected into the film already of them just careening around and screaming their lungs out one bad car accident. Oh, my God, I don't know, honey, but we got to help that girl. Get her to a town. I hope no one catches on. I broke parole. I got a bobby pin. It's a bobby pin. I can't find it. My mother's going to kill me. It's got it's got all my cards in it, and, and it was in my pocket. No, my pocket's gone. Gotta help me find it. My mother's gonna kill me. It's got all my cards in it, and 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 it, and it was in my pocket. It was, it was in my pocket. My purse is gone. My purse is gone. Now she tells me. Now she fucking tells me. Let's get a hold of her quick. You think she's gonna make it? I don't know, but she's gonna bleed all over our car. I'll tell you that. Hey, hello, girl. Sticky stuff in my hair. Got sticky stuff in my hair. You better come with us, honey. Come on. I gotta find my wallet. Don't say one word of this to my mother, please. Please. God, she's gonna kill me. I totally saw that uh, when I watched it about a month ago. I rewatched uh, Wild at Heart, and I thought, oh my God, this Sherilyn Fenn scene, it really does seem like. Uh, there were several things in Wild at Heart, I thought. Uh, were echoed again in uh, in Mulholland Drive, but you know that that beautiful brunette with uh, smudged makeup and blood running out of her hair. It was, it's a it's a striking image. I'd use it twice. I want to say that there was some good sound design on that too when she was scratching at her head oh, and God. you just kind of 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> looking for her, 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 her what her, what she call it? Her hairpin, her. <laughs> right. Oh, God. Horrible. Yeah, there's a lot of moments I would consider Mulholland Drive to kind of be like a greatest hits for David Lynch. You know, we'll talk a little bit later about some lip syncing to uh, a Roy Orbison song and stuff like Blue Velvet and the color blue obviously coming up quite a bit in this film. But there are a lot of things where I'm just like, oh, okay. You know, and I I understand that he's an artist. He's going to explore similar themes as we go through. But it's neat to see what he's picked out of some of those previous works and brought into Mulholland drive. And I'm wondering if maybe that's one of the reasons why people latch on to this as being such a great film is that it is kind of familiar territory as opposed to lost highway, which does explore some of those similar themes, but it does it as uh, I think Eric said in a much grittier way. Yeah. It's all jagged edges where this is smooth and pretty and it's haunting and nightmarish, but it's, it's a lot easier to swallow than lost highway. I think. I think one of the things that makes it a little bit of a, a smoother pill to swallow is that Badalamente score that's going through so much of this film, as opposed to the um, the Rammstein and the David Bowie stuff that's happening in uh, Lost Highway, I think is a little bit rougher around the edges than the Badalamente score here. Like when they have a party scene later on in this film, I kept waiting for that same theme from the party scene in, in Lost Highway to come in here but no it's much more sedate if there is a score to that part it's much more low-key so it feels very much like uh you know uh, a dinner party as opposed to a soiree let's say right you're right and that battle of Menti score i mean yeah you're talking about how it's kind of this is kind of a greatest hits for for lynch um the battle of Menti score really reminded me a lot of twin peaks uh there were times where i would look down from the screen and you know, take notes or whatever and i'd hear that 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 you know that uh kind of keyboardy thing and i'm like man i feel like i'm watching twin peaks again right and i know battle of Menti does a lot of his stuff but uh, for me in particular that that kept bringing me back to that that kind of creepy slow you know no matter what's going on you just kind of get that that feel you know with the with the music battle has been looking for the brown note for decades now. <laughs> he's gonna find it one of these days <laughs> but the, to the point to the point of this being the like the greatest it's it's almost seems almost like david lynch's version of michael mann's heat you know like all those themes he's playing with for years and years and he's retreading and and kind of perfecting and really getting down what he wants to say and, and he puts it together and a lot of people consider heat his masterpiece like lynch's small drive is i think widely considered his masterpiece there's a, another early nod in here when we're going down Mulholland Drive, and really, I, I guess I should have to point out that the name of the film is Mulholland DR. It's not the word drive, which is in itself a nod to Sunset Boulevard, which a lot of people will say sun, they won't say it, but they <laughs> if you write it, a lot of people will do the BLVD from that opening of Sunset Boulevard being the street sign, like this being the Mulholland and drive street sign and there's a moment where you see the sunset boulevard street sign and it's interesting in the pilot version there's actually a cue from the the sunset boulevard 
theme that comes up when they show the sign. And it's it's a little obnoxious, like really <laughs> bringing attention, like, hey, look at it, it's Sunset Boulevard. Do you remember when uh, uh, David Lynch played Gordon Cole in Twin Peaks? Do you remember how there's that connection there? But fortunately, it's a little bit more sedate in the <laughs> in this version of it. But it is a nice little nod that we have that. And following Rita through these kind of back alleys and, and the well, through these streets at night as she's going along and trying to find safe haven. There's a moment where she's hiding and there's a couple that comes out and they're just cackling away mm-hmm. and they never say anything. And it's interesting how we get so many scenes of laughter in the film. And there's a moment later on, I was talking about that, that dinner party. There's a moment in that that just kind of degrades into laughter um, where characters can't even get the words out. There's a scene kind of like that in the pilot. I don't think that it's in the feature film, and please correct me if I'm wrong, where it's the two cops that we see talking, and there's a moment where one of the cops, the heavier cop, is discussing... Nice wallets. Hand-stitched Italian, filled with pony credit cards. Not the two guys in the caddy. The one of them still alive? Yeah. It's just, uh... Well, Dr. Scott's got it. You remember Dr. Scott? Oh, yeah. Well, he said, uh, well, you know, in his way. You know what I mean. Besides the guy getting rolled up under the kid's car, which busted him up pretty bad, there was this little knife-like torn piece of metal, you know, from the car body, rolled out, slid up through the guy's neck, and just kind of slit the carotid artery, you know. But they didn't find it right away. So the guy's losing a lot of blood, you know, to the brain all this time. Because it's just like this thin little puncture wound on the surface of the neck that just kind of sealed itself, he said, while uh, inside the carotid arteries bleeding pretty steady all that time. So anyway, Dr. Scott's laughing, you know, like he does, because he knows we want to talk to this guy. He's laughing, you know, and shaking, and some of it can't stop laughing, and it's, well, it's kind of contagious, because pretty soon we're all laughing. I mean, the nurse is laughing. You know how he is. Find out who they are? No, not yet. Fingerprints don't match up anywhere. Interesting. Yeah. And they both use the same address. Where at? Palmdale. Damn. It's a long drive. I mean, it's one of those classic Lynch scenes where it's just like, why are we laughing at this thing? It doesn't really make any sense, but it's this wonderful level of absurdity. And it kind of reminds me of the laughter that we're going to get when we cut to the scene of Mark Pellegrino and uh, the other um, kind of low-life guy who's got this phone book, the, uh, what was it, All the Secrets of the World or whatever are inside of this phone book, The History of the World, and they're laughing like crazy. So there's a lot of scenes of laughter in here, and of course there's a lot of scenes of people falling asleep, and that's one of the things we get Rita doing pretty quickly in this movie, even though you're not supposed to sleep with a concussion, and they even say that at one point, but a lot of these early scenes, we just see her falling asleep, whether it's outside while looking for a place or when it's when she goes inside of the aunt's apartment and she falls asleep in there. So a lot of, again, kind of clues to tell us that things necessarily might not be reality. They might be a dream. And I guess I should have mentioned that opening, which uh, was not in the pilot, the whole thing of the pillow and the, the kind of 
end of the film being at the beginning of the film with that uh, opening of the bed, uh, the the shot of the pillow in the bed that we uh, have at the, the opening of the film. Yeah, it gets confusing keeping track of uh, who's sleeping and who's not. Uh, so many references <laughs> to it throughout. I, I gave up trying to take notes on how many people take naps. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of sleeping in this film. You know, going back to the Sunset Boulevard thing, that, that little nod is interesting because also because, you know, Sunset Boulevard is about Hollywood, right? And about constructing a persona and believing in that persona, right? Uh, even against uh, evidence to the contrary, right? So you get that thematic thing too. And the other thing that the Sunset Boulevard sign reminded me of is the, um, Lincoln Street in Blue Velvet, you know, you're not going down the Lincoln Street, are you? And you get the Lincoln Street, right? It, 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 something about street signs with this guy, right? You know, certain streets mean, they mean things. You know, there's this kind of interesting uh, geography to to the psychological things that are going on within each of his films, I think. But that nod to Sunset Boulevard, I think, is also thematic in that sense. Isn't there a crazy musical cue when they show the Lincoln Street sign <laughs> as well? Is. Yeah, there is. <laughs> it's like... It's it's really uh, not subtle at all. Obviously, like, you know the Sunset Boulevard thing you you might miss. You know Lincoln Street you're not going to miss in Blue Velvet, but you know these close-ups of signs that are kind of interesting. Yeah, there's actually a second musical cue from Sunset Boulevard in the pilot, which is when they go to the studio for Betty's audition. There's a crazy musical cue again from Sunset Boulevard, and it just sticks out like a sore thumb. And it's just like, okay, okay, I get it, I get it. You know, this <laughs> is very much like Norma returning to the studio kind of thing but uh, yeah i'm glad that he, he uh toned that down a little bit i have to say i feel a little bit uh bad um guys when it came to the notes for this episode because normally i try to give like a a scene by scene kind of breakdown or kind of <laughs> lead people through the narrative <laughs> and then with this it's just like i started to fall into that trap of what i love to do which is to look for doubled images and tripled images and and you know repetitions and kind of echoes of things and that's really what a lot of the notes ended up being we're just like hey did you notice that this happens here and then this happens here and just the the way that these you know uh, these two things mirror each other and uh, of course there's tons of mirrors in this movie as well and one of the most famous shots of the movie you actually have multiple mirrors going on when Rita kind of picks her name and seeing that Gilda poster set inside of a mirror next to another mirror and you see the reflection of Rita looking at that reflection it's just like wow you know again another like major uh, kind of clue I guess that Lynch is giving us that things are doubled and multiplied throughout this film she's looking at a picture of Rita Hayworth who uh, changed her hair to platinum blonde for a movie that involved a whole lot of mirrors lady from Shanghai Orson Welles film noir so oh yeah there we go. And Rita even changed her name. I mean, uh, Rita Hayworth was not her given name. And there never was a woman like Gilda. There never was a woman like Gilda or a picture like Gilda. There's never really a Rita either. Right. I think we just wrapped it up right there, right? <laughs> well, it was good talking with you guys. Oh, so tell yeah. me, what do you guys have? <laughs> the mystery solved. Everyone can go home. I watched the pilot last night. Did you watch that uh, fan edit of it? Yeah, I did. That's the first time I'd ever seen it. So, uh, yeah, 
it stuck out to me all those uh, changes so yeah for for folks listening at home there's an amazing fan edit of the pilot out there so the the pilot exists and it's kind of the form that i saw it in back in like 99 or whatever which was this Somebody stole a copy, copied it off of VHS or whatever. So the the version that's out there for the world to, quote unquote, enjoy, the the version that David Lynch does not like is really a degraded version of it. So somebody um, – I hate when people say somebody did this, but <laughs> a fan editor named Q2 took the pilot and then would take the scenes that were – in better shape that ended up being used in the uh, 2001 Mulholland Drive and kind of laid those over the shitty pilot version, uh, shitty just in quality of, of image. And so you actually got to see those little trims that they would do from different scenes, like a line here, a line there. Like when Coco uh, ends up taking Betty into her aunt's apartment, there's a little bit of Coco talking about, like, I'll take you up to the rooftop garden and see things up there. And they just kind of cut around that because it's really, we never see the rooftop garden. So we, who cares, right? <laughs> so right. so right. that's gone. So they kind of cover that with a shot of the apartment and then cut back to, you know, and so Coco's next line is gone and then cut back to her leaving. So it's kind of a nice way to cover those things. So watching the two things side by side is great. And then watching that pilot version is fantastic because you get to see, like, as soon as the quality shifts, you're like, oh, okay, this was pilot. And then once it goes back to nice, it's like, okay, now I know that this was in the final film. So <laughs> there's some other things right. here and there that uh, you know will call attention to themselves. The biggest thing for me is that kind of round-robin phone call thing that happens with Mr. Roke starts calling around and looking for the girl, who I assume is Rita in this case. And he's looking for her in the last phone that they come to is a blue phone and this hand reaches out this woman uh, allegedly a woman's hand reaches out and pushes this button with these red fingernails and that kind of that's been changed for the final film but it's interesting that that is in there and then it's a very blue looking scene and blue in this film really kind of symbolizes for me, at least this kind of otherworldliness, you know, we've got the blue key and the blue smoke, the one with the blue hair that just every time there's blue on screen, it seems to really kind of say that we are you know, in that nether world. Something that really stuck out to me uh, watching Maha up again, Justin Thoreau gets top billing. And I didn't know if that was just left over from the uh, from the television pilot, but but it made me think, you know, could you see this? Could you see Mulholland Drive as Justin Thoreau's story? Is, you know, is he our surrogate Lynch? Is this him? <laughs> you know, the the travails of a director. And and watching the uh, watching the pilot last night, I was surprised to see how much of the Justin Thoreau stuff dealing with the the unreasonable um, executives was in the pilot. So I kind of figured that stuff was uh, Lynch responding to uh, to the show not getting picked up. You know, that whole great bit where Angelo Badalamenti drinks the espresso and then spits it out on the napkin. I, I just, I kind of thought that's David Lynch giving his best, his best espresso to the, the executives. And they just kind of, they just, it's, you know, he's what he says, it's shit. It's, and uh, you know, it's, very arbitrary seeming, but uh, 
Justin Thoreau, top billing, certainly not in the movie near as much as uh, Watts and Herring, though. I like that metaphor of the espresso, you know, for the <laughs> for the pilot not getting taken up. That's uh, yeah, that's good. I, yeah, I wonder a little bit uh, and this might be getting ahead of myself. Like what what would this have been as a TV show? Because as a movie, it works in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, I think the reason that this movie is so popular and has been rated so highly is because of how confusing it is to some extent. Right. Lynch is giving us just enough. Like it's very dreamlike. And I'm sure we'll get into that uh, at some point. But it's very dreamlike. It's very confusing. It, it kind of uh, repeats and, and turns back on itself. But gives you enough to kind of get your hooks into, right? To go, okay, well, I think this might mean that, or, oh, this could be that. It gives you enough of a puzzle, uh, to, to try to, you know, kind of figure those things out, you know, whereas, um, you could have gone a different direction in, in that respect. And Lynch gives us so much of the one type of narrative. That's kind of the, the bulk, of, I would say, of the pilot is, one type of narrative, the whole idea of Betty and Rita and their kind of adventure and Betty trying to help Rita out and all this kind of stuff. That's so much of the movie. And then when it shifts, we kind of have two things going on. We've got the lesbian plot kind of coming more into the fore. And then we also have the Club Silencio. So it's kind of those two things. So this otherworldliness of the Club Silencio, plus all the memories and the confusion of the uh, the memories towards the end. So, But they give us so much of that Betty and Rita story and the Adam Kesher story that it kind of lulls us into a sense of security I would think that it really mm -hmm. feels kind of like a straight ahead narrative and then they kind of turn everything on its ear towards the end and now suddenly it gives us this whole new interpretation of it that we can then reapply to the rest of the film so I think it, it makes a lot of sense that that's one of the reasons why it's popular is that we have so much of that lulling us into a sense of serenity that when it changes it really kind of throws us I like it, it's it's kind of asymmetrical, you know, that uh, supposedly David Lynch's home doesn't have any 90 degree angles on, <laughs> in the interior. And, the you know, that he makes his own furniture and, and things like that. That table, Aunt Irene picks the uh, picks the, her keys up off of, you know, there's a couple shots of her picking up off the table. It's not a it's not a square or a rectangle. It, it's it's a and uh asymmetrical and um uh you know i'm sure that's one that that lynch made and and uh i don't know the, the film seems that way too every time you think <laughs> like you said it's, it's lulling you into this uh oh i know i know where the next corner is you know this is going to mirror up this is and you say no this uh it twists a little it's not it's not the two two halves uh in a mirror it, it's 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 several several mirrors creating strange shapes. So Yeah, it's that shot from Citizen Kane when he's walking across uh, the, the the hallway and you've got the reflection of the reflection of the reflection going off on, into infinity. Yeah, absolutely. Or like or as Jed said earlier, the lady the lady from Shanghai, right? Sticking with the noir right. thing. You know, you've got you've got a lot of that going on. One thing that I, I did find uh uh, interesting about the beginning of the film that that maybe clued you in that it was gonna it was gonna turn on its ear a little bit is the is the delivery of the actors. Um, Naomi Watts plays Betty as 
so incredibly naive that you start, I think you start the movie going, okay, this is, this has to be intentional, right? She has to be intentionally overdoing her naivete. There's no way that we're going for a realistic uh, portrayal here, right? Uh, Just the look on her face, the way she delivers the lines up through maybe about maybe, I'm not sure, half an hour into the film, perhaps until she goes to the audition, actually, I think where you get that kind of transformation um, of the Naomi Watts character to an extent. And then the, also the deadpan delivery of the detectives, it seems like there's a maybe there's a missing person or whatever they say, right? It's like, right. Yeah, maybe. Like it's so it's so incredibly deadpan, and you you take that with Betty's naivete, and you think you automatically think there's something not right here, something's off, right? Which doesn't stop you from being drawn into the narrative, like you said, Mike. You know, which then you you want to stay with the narrative when he messes with you at the end, right? Mm-hmm. But there's a little clue there, I think, that you know something's not something's not right something's off here yeah when you see betty coming down the escalator and coming into los angeles and just everything is so bright and beautiful and she's smiling so big and then to get that moment when she panics and thinks that her luggage has been stolen but oh no it's the nice porter who's moved it into the taxi or the taxi driver and it's just like (laughs) you know everything is you know it's like the robins have come back right it's just so so (laughs) super cheesy it's fantastic just the way she She's beaming the way that the old couple in the car are, you know, smiling and slapping each other on the knees and stuff. It's just, wow. Yeah, it it is really intense. And then even her interchange with Coco. Ten bucks says you're Betty. Yes, I am, Mrs. Lenoir. It is Mrs. Lenoir, isn't it? Oh, and all my living glory, baby. It's just so super cheesy. Right. Yeah, good job on the Robins. Yeah, very very good connection to Blue Velvet there. That's exactly what it is, right? The other Blue Velvet nod there is where uh, Betty helps Rita play detective. You know, she gets super charged up about playing detective, calling mm-hmm. the cops and inquiring about the uh, the accident on Mulholland Drive. And again, Lynch's greatest hits uh, uh, movie. But yeah, mm-hmm. he, he does that all through Twin Peaks. She's almost solving the murder that she might have had committed. (laughs) Right. Right. It's like such a driving force maybe for her that even though the cops are in this, I would venture to say fantasy land, she's still the one who's doing the investigation. But yeah, it's, it's very Nancy drew esque of her to be sneaking around and, you know, having to go to the pay phone to call to the police because she doesn't want to call from the home phone. That's, that's terrific. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point too about the Kyle McLaughlin character in Blue Velvet. Like you're saying, he's like this kind of naive, kind of you know, gee whiz kind of detective, right? Who gets drawn into this other thing. So that's, yeah, it's a good parallel. And of course, as you're saying that, I'm picturing him in Dorothy's apartment stealing those keys, and I'm just like, <laughs> oh god, how many times do we see keys in this movie? All right, I want to jump ahead. A, a lot and talk about when they go to the apartments. They they kind of figure out that the name Diana Selwyn or Diane Selwyn is in uh, this whole mystery. Like when they go to Winkies at one point, they see a woman has a, a name tag of Diane. So that triggers Rita to then say, oh yeah, Diane, and, and comes up with Diane Selwyn. And they find the the number in the book and they end up calling and that's a terrific scene. I love the dialogue of that when uh, she says, it's strange to be calling yourself a 
Maybe it's not me. Hello, it's me. It's not my voice. And then when the phone picks up and it's an answering machine, it is obviously Naomi Watts' voice on the other end and her saying, hello, it's me, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But when they finally visit those apartments, they go up to what they think is Diane Selwyn's apartment. The dark-haired woman comes out. The way that she's wearing her hair, not necessarily the way that she's wearing her clothes, the type of body, any of that kind of stuff, but the way that she's wearing her her hair really reminds me of Rita, Mm -hmm. just that darker hair and kind of brushed to the side kind of thing. So as they're looking at each other, and there's a moment when this other woman kind of is staring down Rita a little bit, and Rita seems to kind of like... I don't know, avert her eyes, uh, at least to me. It just seems to me that that's another parallel between these two characters as far as their their hairstyle and just that there is some some similarities there between these two, especially if there's definitely has been a relationship between who we'll call uh, uh, Diane <laughs> and this woman who's uh, in the other apartment. There has been this relationship there. And so to me, it's kind of like, you know, her taking those qualities and, and projecting them onto another person, Betty doing that with, with uh, how she's going to do that with a lot of things in this film. But it feels like there's always that moment, that, that threat of the fantasy breaking down. You know, if, we're, if we approach this film, and we can approach this film a lot of different ways. You know, I like the idea that Jed had as far as let's approach this from it being Adam Kesher's film. Really, there's a lot of narrative when it comes to Kesher. If we approach this from it being a narrative about Betty being a projection of Diane, being a fantasy of Diane, and this whole first part of the movie being a fantasy of Diane's and her creating the perfect actress, the perfect ingenue, the perfect woman who's able to to take Hollywood by storm, which she hasn't necessarily been able to do, and then having Rita there, her love interest, who... In this fantasy, to me, she's kind of controlling Rita through the amnesia. It feels like if you take this character of Camilla and give her amnesia, make her completely dependent upon Betty, because that's really what it feels like to me, is that she is 100% dependent upon Betty. And so then Betty becomes her protector and then eventually her lover. And it feels like Betty, a.k.a. Diane, is kind of manipulating Rita through this uh, amnesia that she has. Does that make sense to anybody else? Absolutely. You know, when Melissa George shows up in the audition playing Camilla Rhodes, you know, the name later associated with Laura Haring, uh, the song she's singing or lip syncing is Why Can't I Be You? You know, that's uh, that seems pretty much to get right at the if it's a dream, you know, poking at all these all these characters seem to be kind of pushing in on Betty to back up, back up. You're getting too close to the edge. Go here, go here. This is where you'll be. You'll enjoy it more. And yeah, she just seems to kind of be ping ponging back and forth between, you know, looking for the the warm center. I was talking earlier about when I was watching, um, I was studying vertigo and then was watching this to kind of prepare for the show forever ago. The moment for me that really got me was the Louise Bonner scene, which was written for the pilot. It might have been shot for the pilot, but it was not in the pilot. And that's the moment when Lee Grant comes in and she's got that kind of crazy hair and that uh, hood on and 
comes in and she's almost like uh, like a seer or something. She seems like she's some sort of a mythological figure and comes, you know, knocks on the door and she's asking uh, Betty who she is and that things aren't right. Yes? May I help you? Someone is in trouble. Who are you? What are you doing in Ruth's apartment? She's letting me stay here. I'm her niece. My name's Betty. No, it's not. That's not what she said. Someone is in trouble. Something bad is happening. Things aren't the way that they should be. You know, it's kind of like the person in uh, The Man in the High Castle who knows the Nazis lost the war, you know, and is trying to convince everybody else. It feels like Louise has been kind of clued in that things aren't the right way. And that's one of those moments to me where the fantasy starts to fall apart. It's one of those moments, too, where we have a knock at the door. And so much of this movie, especially towards the end, is all about a knock at the door. And things really start to fall apart when there's a knock at the door. You know, that's when Betty kind of wakes up, you know, the cowboy who will talk about the cowboy God, my, my favorite part of the movie. Mm-hmm. But the, when the cowboy, you know, after he wakes her up, there's a knock at the door. And then when things really fall apart at the end of the film, there's a knock at the door. And I'm almost wondering if that's kind of a nod to Celine and Julie go boating. You know, we talked in that episode about the knock at the door and the girls knocking on the door of this chateau where everything is in a dream world when you're inside of the chateau. And it almost seems like once they get inside of Aunt Ruth's apartment, they're inside of this dream world and nothing can affect them. But Louise Bonner knocking at the door really kind of intrudes upon the fantasy. Yeah. And that apartment looks so much different in the first part of the movie and the, the end of the film, uh, even though you can tell it's the same room, same furniture, same everything the way it's shot in the, it looks like artifice uh, in the first half compared to the second. So yeah, that, that space, that being our safe space, uh, that gets tainted by, by interruption and phone calls too, seem to, uh, shake them out of, out of their, their happy place. And phone calls are definitely the tool of Mr. Roke. Mr. Roke, who I don't think we really, we never really get a clear answer for him. And I think that had this become a television show, we would have gotten a lot more of the Mr. Roke story, but his whole tool, I mean, he basically is in this you know, uh, uh, hermetically sealed room and people talk to him through intercoms and he just has his phone out to the rest of the world. And that's how he seems to control everything. He's like the spider at the center of the web, reaching out through phone calls and making things happen. You mentioned he's in that hermetically sealed room because I can't believe we haven't talked about the, uh, the winky scene yet. Uh, with uh, Patrick Fischler and, and, and Michael Cook uh, uh, talking about the nightmare. But uh, Patrick Fischler, he says, there's a man. He's behind the wall, and I can see him, and he's controlling it. And he's, and that always seemed like, oh, well, that's, that's clearly that's, we're going to lead to this being you know, Mr. Roke. But, uh, yeah, we never quite get, get answers that way. But if you look at uh, Twin Peaks, Michael Anderson uh, played in Twin Peaks, the man from mm-hmm. another place. Another uh, place. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's him, the short guy, and and then there's the giants and the aliens, and and then I, I forget if it's in the film or in in the second season somewhere uh, where the the three of them are standing together, and 
And they say to Agent Cooper, you know, they say one and the same. We're all the same force, essentially. And so I, I get the feeling that uh, Mr. Roke and, you know, the, the the man behind the dumpster and, you know, maybe the cops and all these sort of authority figures uh, throughout the film, the cowboy, uh, you know, they could all be versions of the same the same entity or the same uh, uh, or tools of the same entity. I don't know. But uh, I always thought that that called back to to the Twin Peaks thing. It's interesting that you're saying the man behind the. Yeah, but well, that's what they call her. Uh, Yeah, they call the woman the man. And there's a lot. I mean, there's ambiguity because when I saw it the first time, I thought for sure it was a man. And then it took me uh, quite a few viewings before I was just like, wait, is that really a man? Is that a woman? I mean, it's played by uh, Bonnie Aarons. Bonnie, uh, in this case, uh, I guess in all cases, being a female name, (laughs) she looks rough and you really can't. She's covered in so much filth that it is difficult to even kind of make out her features. That second shot in the uh, in the in the TV pilot of her at the end uh, with the burning refuse behind her and things like that. Did he use that later in Inland Empire? I, I could not think it. That's not in the theatrical cut of Mulholland Drive, is it? It is not in the theatrical cut, as far as I know. But I had seen it somewhere. I want to say it's maybe used in Inland Empire somewhere. But uh, It could be. The way he recycled things like rabbits and stuff, right? I think that yeah. might have been lifted shots here and there. Yeah. Yeah, going back to something Jed said about the, the man from another place and all that, I, I, I am, like, we keep talking about Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks and forward to Inland Empire, and I'm tempted to treat all of those movies as as occurring in the same universe, right? But then as soon as that temptation comes, I'm like, no, because, you know, that way lay madness, right? <laughs> because if you start trying to do that, then you're, you know, you're never going to you're never going to get out of it, but there are so many similarities that it's, you know, you, you do find yourself thinking like maybe there is this hidden kind of uh universe behind all of these films, you know, from which they all come in a certain respect, you know, how they all connect in a way. And that might be a little too much, you know, that might be reading a little too much in, but, it, but especially with Mulholland drive, it does seem to pull a lot of that stuff together a lot thematically and, and specifically with the same actors and that, you know, that, uh, the guy, uh, Mr. Uh, Roke, I mean, it evokes twin peaks almost exactly in, in, in some ways. Right. So you, you do wonder, you know, is he, is Lynch trying to make this one universe with these different, you know, kind of manifestations almost. And again, that just seems like crazy conspiracy theory, but I feel that pull, you know, to, to do that kind of analysis or interpretation. The cowboy so much reminds me of the Robert Blake character from lost highway. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yep. This character who knows way too much knows more than they should know. Again, it feels like he's kind of at the center of a web, the way he gives that kind of prophecy to Adam Kesher and the way that he is just in complete control of the situation just so reminds me of Blake coming up to uh, Bill Pullman at that party and just saying, We've met before, haven't we? I don't think so. Where was it you think we met? At your house, don't you remember? No, no, I don't. Are you sure? Of course. As a matter of fact, 
I'm there right now. What do you mean you're where right now? At your house. That's fucking crazy, man. talking to you that's one of the best scenes of of the movies bar none for me and the cowboy as soon as the cowboy came on screen the first time i mean he instantly became one of my favorite characters (laughs) and just especially the way that he talks to kesher and the way that he is so calm throughout the whole thing Especially when Kesher's being a smart aleck, and he calls him out for being a smart aleck. Howdy. Howdy to you. Beautiful evening. Yeah. She want to thank you for coming all the way up here to see me from that nice hotel downtown. No problem. It's on your mind. Well, now, here's a man who wants to get right down to it. Kind of anxious to get to it, are you? Whatever. Man's attitude. Man's attitude goes some ways the way his life will be. Is that something you might agree with? Sure. Now, did you answer because that's what you thought I wanted to hear? Or did you think about what I said and answer? Because you truly believe that to be right. I agree with what you said. Truly. What'd I say? That a man's attitude determines to a large extent how his life will be. So since you agree, you must be a person who does not care about the good life how's that we'll stop for a little second and think about it can you do that for me (laughs) okay I'm thinking no you're not thinking 
You're too busy being a smart aleck to be thinking. Now I want you to think and stop being a smart aleck. Can you try that for me? Look, where's this going? What do you want me to do? There's sometimes a buggy. How many drivers does a buggy have? One. So let's just say I'm driving this buggy. And if you fix your attitude, you can ride along with me. Okay. I want you to go back to work tomorrow. You were recasting the lead actress anyway. Audition many girls for the part. When you see the girl that was shown to you earlier today, you will say, this is the girl. The rest of the cast can stay. That's up to you. But that lead girl is not up to you. Now you will see me one more time if you do good. You'll see me two more times if you do bad. Good night. Between uh, the cowboy and Robert Blake, uh, David Lynch thinks fate doesn't have eyebrows. (laughs) <laughs> right, right that's another character where i'm just like gosh i wish there was a tv show of mulholland drive because i would love to see more of the cowboy yeah it's funny too because the uh the actor uh monty montgomery uh who played the cowboy uh was also a producer of uh david lynch's short film the uh cowboy and the frenchman and i i was looking for a connection there between the cowboy and the cowboy but that's as far as i got but I'd also I'd seen a movie that uh, Monty Montgomery co-directed uh, with Catherine Bigelow called The Loveless in the past couple of years. And uh, that one struck me as being very much like uh, having a very blue velvet vibe to it. So um, have, have you seen that one with uh, Willem Dafoe? It's been a long time. Yeah. But yeah, when actually when we were talking about Streets of Fire on the show a long time ago, something about Willem Dafoe and overalls, I was just like, oh, I got to see this, uh, uh, the Loveless film. And it did not disappoint. Yeah, it was terrific. But it, it, it almost seemed like a, probably Loveless was a little earlier than Blue Velvet. But uh, they seem to be playing with a lot of the same same tools anyway. Yeah, I really tried to find out more information about Monty Montgomery, but unfortunately I was not able to find anything. I mean, God, talk about just like the best interview. I would have loved to have <laughs> talked to that guy. Mm, right. Especially if he did it in character. Are you asking me that because you think you should ask me that? or <laughs> right? isn't, isn't that just the nightmare <laughs> interview? <laughs> to me, that's like I, if you go in for a job interview, that that's the guy that I dread most seeing across oh, yeah. who cuts through all your bullshit and and just asks you really uncomfortable. (laughs) Well, there's a fellow who really knows what he wants. (laughs) That knows what you want. Wants to get right to it. Did you say that that was your greatest weakness because you thought you should say that? (laughs) And of course I'm looking for if he returns one time or two times and does Kesher see Mm -hmm. him both times or not, because he does return, but Kesher doesn't see him either time. Right. Comes back at that party. And again, that totally reminds me of, of lost highway with that. The character in that dinner party next to 
Betty, who at this point is Diane, is this guy. And he was in the pilot. And totally cut out of the pilot. Right. I, at first, I thought he was John Bon Jovi, right. but it's not. But... <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, he's doing some acting. And, you know, um, what's his name? Billy, the, Ray the, Cyrus. Billy Ray Cyrus. Billy Ray Cyrus is in this, so why not him? Chris Isaac's in his other movies, right? Wilkins. Wilkins is his name, not not Winkies. And, yeah, it's funny. He's he, Not only is he in the pilot, but he's the guy who owns the dog that craps in the yard, craps out in the courtyard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I missed that. <laughs> so at the end of the day, he would have ended up being Betty and Rita's neighbor there at, at Aunt Ruth's apartment. So here's a question about him then. Since the, he's in both the pilot and the feature, but none of the same, none of the same material, is he playing the same character? Or is this just an, an actor that David Lynch liked and he wanted to, you know, throw him a bone? Are we supposed to? Well, I mean, we're not supposed to compare the two, but uh, what, did, what was your impression that way? That whole dinner party, it reminds me of The Wizard of Oz, you know, and it reminds me of when Dorothy wakes up and she says, It wasn't a dream. It was a place. And you and you and you and you were there. <laughs> feels like that to me like looking around and seeing the cowboy and seeing Badalamente and seeing this guy who was only in the pilot version but you know was kind of in that dream section so I think all of these people were part of her dream so it's kind of that moment of, of Wizard of Oz in which of course, you know, there's so much Wizard of Oz and Wild at Heart, it's not above David Lynch to do a Wizard of Oz kind of a thing. Sure, people talk with funny voices in a lot of his stuff. So. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. Always seems like Wizard of Oz to me. But they, you know, you bring up that, that courtyard bit, and I got a really strong impression of Wild at Heart just from that courtyard bit and Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz, when uh, Coco is talking about the... Uh, if I see that dog of yours again, I'm going to bake his little butt. You know, it sounds like uh, w- Wicked Witch of the West saying, and your dog, yeah. Toto, too. And But uh, that, that that scene in Wild at Heart where they're they're sitting around there in Big Tuna and at the motel court. And they're just there's that little community, all the characters hanging out in the motel and all the for some reason. I don't know if he was intending to imply that, but I definitely felt like. That's what goes on at this court courtyard. You know, it's probably not people making pornos Texas style, but uh, it seems like a this court, you know, all the this courtyard, this common area is where all the characters hang out, uh, share space. Well, and of course, I'm thinking with this courtyard, I'm thinking of um, in a lonely place. Is there a, a neighbor who's going to be like Dixon Steele and a neighbor who's going to be like the Gloria Graham character? Seems like they could live in this same apartment. That's going on concurrently, right across the courtyard from each other. <laughs> yeah, I like that. the guy with this shitting dog on one side and Gloria Graham on the other side. Right, which is another film about Hollywood, right, and about uh, mistaken not mistaken identity, but you know, trying to understand somebody from afar and right, you know, uh, not to go too far into that, but you know, Love Dick Steele, right, right, you know, is is Dick Steele a murderer? I don't know, you know. Well, I've never really thought about Sunset Boulevard being a story of mistaken identity, but that's what propels the entire plot is when they think he's the man to pick up the uh, the dead monkey, <laughs> and him kind of living this double life of 
you know, Norma Desmond's uh, houseboy who knows what's going on at the, the Desmond household and then also trying to maintain this relationship with the writer and he has to put on the two roles and when those things collide then you know it's not so good yeah absolutely and you know and then you have Norma Desmond uh, who you know has all these ideas of who she is right that that are kind of counterfactual right which which again goes back to Mulholland Drive too right yeah there's a lot of that going on no courtyards I can think of in Sunset Boulevard though there's a lot of Hollywood in this film, and we really haven't talked too much about that as far as that being one of the major drivers of things is that Camilla and Diane seem to be actors, and it seems like things are going very well for Camilla, especially it seems like she's kind of sleeping her way to the top. At least that seems to be Diane's take on things, especially the scene that we get of uh, Adam and Camilla in the, the car and him trying to uh, direct her into the proper kiss. And then in the other world that we have, it's the whole idea of Betty and her being the perfect actress, you know, being able to act the scene. And I love this bit. I love the scene where she's acting with Rita and it's a really kind of a cheesy scene. And then the real scene happens at the the, you know, the real audition happens at the director and producer's office, and it turns 180 degrees away from what it was in the apartment. The way that Naomi Watts plays the scene and Chad Everett play the scene, I mean, it is it's wonderful, and it really is as breathtaking as everybody in the room says that yeah. it is. But that is one of those moments, and that's the moment that you brought up before was when Betty loses the innocence and is able to play this like a sex pot instead of being sweet little Betty Monroe from, uh, well, Betty Elms, I know, but from, from uh, you know, bumfuck uh, Ontario, you know? That double scene is probably one of my favorite parts of the movie because when they're reading the script back and forth, at first you don't realize they're reading a script, um, right. but, but pretty Pretty early on in the scene, you do, and then and they start laughing about it, and she's like, "Oh, a cheesy dialogue, you know," and they're laughing and ha ha ha, and then you get to the audition, and it is so moving, and she is so convincing in that real passionate, you know, the way she's whispering the lines and all that. It's it's amazing, and it, it's it is kind of maybe ironic that maybe the realist kind of uh, kind of most most emotional and realist feel you get from Betty is when she's actually playing a role right in an audition and as soon as she's done that scene goes on for a while and it's it's breathtaking and then at the end she's she's kind of does this weird kind of shoulder shrug kind of mini curtsy and goes well, I guess that's it or something like that you know back to back to Betty again you know it's I, I, I think it's stunning and it's the going back to your doubles right there's a double scene there's a scene of them reading it in the apartment and the scene of them doing her doing the audition and as you say it can't it couldn't be more opposite you know i think there's something going on there where the most convincing performance you get is in an audition (laughs) right getting back thinking of it as possibly adam cashier's movie you know it it seems to be the story of a movie getting made and all the all the ways it can succeed completely by accident or be destroyed Mm -hmm. completely by accident and it can see succeed by vision and will and talent and it can uh be destroyed by uh, people with great talent. Uh, you know, it, I don't know. They, they seem to be between the, um, you know, the two examples of a cheesy script being bad and a cheesy script being good. 
And uh, to uh, the directors, you know, the, the director for the scene that's really good is a t- he seems like a terrible director, right? Yeah, he's, director. <laughs> yeah, he's all spaced out. He's not paying any attention. Yeah. <laughs> and and then Adam Kesher, when he's directing, uh, you know, Laura Herring in the car, you know, it, it's very, uh, you know, he seems like, oh, yeah, we, we understand. He's uh, he's he seems like he's good at his job um, and he'd probably produce something worth worth watching. The way that Thoreau plays him, especially in the pilot, because in the pilot, you were saying earlier, he does get much more screen time than he did in the final film. And I think they cut out a lot of him being kind of a brat in the final film. He has every right to be a brat, especially when the brothers come in and they're telling him, you know, you're going to cast this girl. But just the him with the golf club going around and just he's so jaunty and everything. I mean, he just comes off as such an a-hole yeah. <laughs> through that. And I, like I said, I can understand he gets angry, but there's even more like cutting lines and more, um, uh, you know, him like kind of flying off the handle when the when the brothers come in. And it. He, it's great though because he kind of is really our our um, our foil for that scene because when the brothers, you know, when uh, Lamente is spitting out the the coffee and and Dan Hadea is, is screaming and, and you know it, it, he is taken aback by it and he's just like, what the hell's going on here? And he really kind of plays our role because we're just like, what? This is not normal. I mean, it's normal for a David Lynch film, but it's not normal in the real world. So it's, it's interesting how much he gets kind of trimmed out there, but they do make him seem a little bit uh, nicer that way. Yeah. And he's held up as almost a, a, a mirror, you know, the opposite of um, of Betty in a way that they come up against major disappointments. And they, you know, we see him interact with the cowboy and the cowboy says, hey, change your attitude. Things will go OK. And, you know, by the end of the movie, yeah, things have gone great for him when they started out so shitty. And, and with in the same scene where things are going great for him is when it seems like the um, what it, Diane at that time, the uh, um Naomi Watts character really kind of she makes that that change that decision that internal uh, click where nope not going to just roll with it can't let this go going to destroy my life over it. Well, I'm wondering too if the first part of the movie is Betty's fantasy. How much of Kesher? You know, he's kind of humiliated. His wife is sleeping with the pool boy. You know, and obviously at the end of the film it turns out okay. You know, she kept the pool boy. He kept the pool. <laughs> But in the rest of the film, in the fantasy part, he's pretty much humiliated, you know, especially when he's trying to pour that pink paint into the, the, the jewelry box and he's got pink paint all over him and everything. It just, um, I'm curious how much Betty is trying to kind of tear him down because, you know, for all intents and purposes, he's the one who's kind of stealing her girl away from her. Yeah, there's that too. I like that Lynch reversed the sexes in this and made it, you know, going back to to Vertigo, I could see Betty possibly being like the Jimmy Stewart kind of a character, you know, and especially like Jimmy Stewart with Madeline and the way that he's trying to control Madeline or moreover, the way that he tries to control Judy and remaking Judy into his, his perfect Madeline. And that for me is kind of the beginning of Mulholland Drive is the way that Betty is kind of, you know, helping out Rita. And, and at one point she actually does remake 
Rita into her, you know, the way that she puts this blonde wig on her. And then that's the moment when they can finally sleep together is when Rita looks almost exactly like Betty and they have their, their, uh, their persona moment, I should, I could say, as far as their, you know, we get them making love and then we get the, their faces kind of intersecting when they're in bed. But, you know, it's nice that it's two women instead of it being a man because the, you know, you could almost see it a little bit easier with a man being that manipulative and coming in and saying like, oh, let me take care of you, you broken flower and, and I'm the perfect actor and I'm going to do all this stuff wonderfully but having naomi watson that character in that role i think really does some some great things for it and helps play up some of the confusion later on between all the women and especially all the women with a lot of the same names the persona thing is is really interesting right because you again you have the whole idea of two women being one right being fused together and you know not to not to beat a dead horse but you know persona is about movies as well in a way right because if you remember the first the first and last images of persona are film going through the projector you know and, and then the film burning up at some point so you do have the sense of um you know again like how do you project yourself into the world how do you present yourself how do you understand yourself right it, it, so you get this kind of uh yeah conflation i guess of, of two identities and and in Mulholland Drive, it's multiplied many times uh, to the point where I still, man, I have, so I still get all the all the different ways that it's that it's multiplied. But but it's the same thing, right? It's this idea of like, how do we understand ourselves, you know? Because you know, Persona is about an actress who refuses to speak, and you always wonder like whose whose story is it, you know? Whose um, subjective experience are we seeing here in persona and in um Mulholland drive the mainstream interpretation i think the the kind of biggest interpretation is the one i think you're going with mike is that is that the last third or maybe quarter of Mulholland drive is kind of the reality in a way i guess and the stuff at the beginning is all this projection of uh, the Naomi Watts character, Betty's kind of trying to control everything and make it different, you know, try to try to kind of revise history in a way that makes her look better. But I think there are other ways to read it, too. Right. I, I don't think that's as, as straightforward as perhaps um, <laughs> not that anything's straightforward about this movie, but, you know, as, as that interpretation might suggest, you know, some people say the whole thing's a dream. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that is the easiest way of going mm-hmm. about this because there are still so many things that don't fit into that. You know, you and that's one of the reasons why I like this movie so much yeah. is that somebody could tell me tomorrow, no, it's actually this, this, and this is another valid interpretation. You know, Jed saying like, oh, what if this was Adam Kesher's movie? It's like, okay, yeah, let, let's look at it through that. There right. are interpretations I read where it's like, well, what if it's actually uh, Rita's film instead? And it's just like, oh, okay, yeah, that might be interesting. <laughs> right. Just as long as you can back it up mm-hmm. and, and talk about it intelligently, I'm open to anything. And that's one of the great things about this movie is that it is open to so many different interpretations. I mean, even with this, you know, oh, well, it's all Betty's dream or, or Diane's projection kind of thing. There are so many things where it's just like, well, what about that then? Uh-huh. Why is it? Why is Cookie in the Adam Kesher part and also in Club Silencio? What is Club Silencio? What does that bring to us? Mm-hmm. You know, and the whole idea of Betty having a fit 
during that part and shaking, you know, is that supposed to represent like the films coming out of the projector kind of thing? Or what is that? You know, and just the idea of the, with the, you know, Rebecca Del Rio falling to the stage and laying there in a crumpled heap. Is that supposed to remind us of the way that Diane is laying on the bed dead in one part and then wakes up in another part? So, who knows? Who knows? Yeah, and that's that's one of the great things about this. I mean, the Club Silencio stuff, you could take that and just spin that into a whole other thing. You could use the, the Club Silencio part as your your Rosetta Stone and, and reinterpret everything f- just through that lens. Right. Yeah. 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 I agree. And, I, and the whole, you know, the dream through three quarters and then reality through the last quarter, I I like that interpretation, actually. I, I get it, you know. But like you said, there are problems with it, and I'm certainly open to to um, most of the other interpretations. And and like you say, that's I think that's what's inviting about the film. It's kind of like looking at that, uh, you know, one of those Escher paintings where uh, the you know monks are walking the stairs, and you'd like uh, you know this monk's walking down the same stairs. Uh, you know, he's walking down and you follow with your eye line and suddenly, you know, those stairs are going up. Are they going up? Or are they going down? Everybody's, you know, you could look at the same movie, the same picture from any of those monks point of view. And they've, they've all got a you can tell exactly where that monk's going until you get to the next monk. Yeah. You know, I think it's that kind of thing there. There's a certain validity to uh, to many, many points of view in this one. And, and none of them are going to. Uh, be completely sealed and, and waterproof. It's like a cinematic Mobius strip, you know. Yeah. And you can see it this way, that way, and it's all the same piece of film. It's just the way that you're you might be seeing it, or the way you know. Of course, we are three distinct individuals coming at this, and we're all going to have our own opinions of this kind of stuff. And there's going to be, you know, there's whole websites dedicated to this, and there's the you know, I've never come up with as many articles about a movie. I don't even think Vertigo and and uh, Stage Fright, or well, not, not Stage Fright, Shadow of Doubt, had as much literature written about them as uh, as this one did. I mean, it was. Uh, crazy how many articles i had to read to study up on this film so the number of articles you put in dropbox that's that's not normal for uh for one of these episodes <laughs> no no not that normal i'm like this guy is thorough man but it's <laughs> which, which you are but <laughs> because there is so much of it huh yeah uh, you know i think that's the credit to the film though because it's we we i think we've all seen avant-garde films that are uh almost purely abstract you know like uh the work of matthew barney for example or you know things like that where you're like okay i know i'm not supposed to understand this or maya darren you know something like that it's like i know this is all dream work and symbolism and there's very little narrative to it and okay i don't get it and it's art right but with this you, you you get that okay there's that but there's also there is something behind it there's a narrativity to it even if it is a mobius strip it's a mobius strip on which is drawn that picture of that you see the old woman or the young woman you know what i'm talking about that picture <laughs> yeah that's drawn on the mobius strip right but there's, but there's enough there that that people will say oh you know there there's there's something here in the narrative in their characterization that you you don't get in some you know some kind of purely avant-garde or purely abstract works and i think that's a real credit to david lynch so let's go ahead and take a break and we're going to play a couple of interviews first we're going to hear from the actor from winkies patrick fishler and secondly we'll hear from actress laura elena Haring, uh who played rita or camilla or um 
maybe a combination of both, or maybe even a third character that we haven't really even thought of. So we'll go ahead and play those right after these brief messages. This is Jamie from Devour the Podcast. Do you enjoy horror commentary with straightforward honesty? This is just a bad movie. This is not at all good in any any way, shape, or form. Because there's one word I have to describe this movie, and it is derivative. Humor and an obvious passion for the genre. <laughs> I was in search of the stop button. Yeah, I know. <laughs> in search of a plot. That's what this movie should be called. You're right. Uh, so... Zero out of five. Fuck this movie. Don't watch it. Then you should spend time with David and me as we discuss horror films from old classics. Deep Red. The Dunwich Horror. Maniac. To new favorites. Event Horizon. House the Devil. Slaughter Night. Come listen to Devour the Podcast. Check us out on iTunes or at devourthepodcast.blogspot.com. Devour the Podcast is a proud member of the Horrorphilia Podcasting Network. We are the Popcorn Poops. My name is Dustin. And my name is Jessica. And together we produce Popcorn Poops, the best married couple movie commentary track podcast on the internet. Join us each week as we take turns picking films and then watch and discuss them together. If you're at home or with a computer or device, you can sync up the movie and watch it right along with us. However, you don't have to sync up the film to enjoy the show. Feel free to tune in like you would to any other podcast. Please visit us on the internet at www.popcornpoops.com. Again, that's www.popcornpoops.com. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superman episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. I just wanted to come here. To Winkies? This Winkies. Okay. Why this Winkies? It's kind of embarrassing. Go ahead. I had a dream about this place. Oh, boy. See what I mean? (laughs) Okay. So you had a dream about this place. Tell me. 
Well, <clears throat> it's the second one I've had, but they're both the same. They start out that I'm in here, but it's not day or night. It's kind of half night, you know? But it looks just like this, <laughs> except for the light. And I'm scared like I can't tell you. Of all people, you're standing right over there. By that counter. You're in both dreams. And you're scared. I get even more frightened when I see how afraid you are, and... Then I realize what it is. There's a man in back of this place. He's the one who's doing it. I can see him through the wall. I can see his face. I hope that I never see that face ever outside of a dream. See if he's out there. To get rid of this god awful feeling. Right then. It seems like you're almost fated to be in show business. Can you tell me a little bit about Patrick's Roadhouse? Patrick's Roadhouse was a restaurant, is, it's still there, a restaurant that my father opened when I was five and named it after me. And it's on the Pacific Coast Highway here in Los Angeles, right across from the beach. And uh, it became super successful and well-known in like the 80s with Arnold Schwarzenegger coming in and Sean Penn and all these sort of celebrities at the time. And since then, you know, has stayed that way. And uh, But no one in my family was in show business, my father included. He wanted to be an actor in his uh, 20s, and that didn't happen when he was living abroad. So I guess I was fated in some way, you know, growing up in Los Angeles maybe, but the family did not dictate it. It would have gone restaurant business, and I chose not to do that. <laughs> when did you decide to get into acting, and, and where did you study? Well, I've always loved film and TV since a little, little kid. I mean, really little. I watched way too much TV as a kid and saw every movie uh, including stuff that was completely inappropriate for my age. I think I saw Carrie when it came out when I was six. So that was just the dumbest idea. Um, my brother took me. I had much older siblings. They are uh, 13 years, 12 years, and 11 years older than me. So, you know, of course, when he's 19, he thinks it's funny to take a six-year-old to carry. But having said that, I loved it, and I still love movies and TV. And so I, when I was in high school, I started dabbling and just doing plays. But by the time I went to college, I went to NYU. I knew pretty much I wanted to be an actor. So I studied acting in New York, and then... Uh, when I graduated, moved right back out to Los Angeles. Is New York where you started the uh, Young Neurotics? The Neurotic Young Urbanites. Uh, no, we actually started that in Los Angeles. When I moved back out here, a bunch of my friends from NYU came as well. And we started this theater company just because back then, this was before iPhones, and you could shoot anything on, you know, with any device. So which people still did theater to kind of 
get an agent and get noticed. And that was the impetus behind it for us. But it grew and we had it for about 10 years until uh, I got too busy to run it. And then it kind of just dissolved. Now, you did a lot of work in television when you were first starting out, including one of my favorite shows, The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. God, yeah. What would you kind of consider your big break as far as getting into to films? Speed was the first movie I did, and I was just came out here. So I guess I was 20. It was 1993 when I got cast in that, so I was 23. So that was the first movie I did. It was, you know, two lines in the elevator, but it, for me it was such a huge deal because I just got an agent and, you know, getting a big movie like that, and it turned out to actually be a great movie. But that didn't – I'd say that sort of for me was exciting. But movie-wise, it's funny because then I did Twister after that. I Kind of uh, – Mulholland and Drive actually was, the at the time, the biggest thing I'd done movie-wise. That was the one that sort of made a difference and, you know – felt different to me than the others. The others were all big budget movies where I had a little bit to do and like Swimming with Sharks I did and had one scene that it just, I, it so happened that these little parts I got in these movies, the movies turned out to actually be kind of big movies, if that makes sense. You know, when we made Swimming with Sharks, I had no idea if anyone would see it and then it became sort of a cult classic and that's kind of what happened with me with a lot of the movies I did at the beginning. For a while there, it seemed like nobody would see Mulholland Drive when it was in that failed pilot stage. Oh, it was unbelievable. I mean, you know, when we shot it, it was uh, a pilot for ABC, and I, you know, signed a contract and thought, okay, who, what, you know, what is this? I was thrilled because I have always been uh, a, a Lynch fan since, you know, Eraserhead, but really Elephant Man and Blue Velvet being the two biggies for me. Getting that call was amazing and you know thinking well this is a tv show and i loved twin peak but then it not getting picked up kind of thought it would never be seen and then next thing i know that they're turning into a movie (laughs) and thinking wow okay that's a surprise and then you know it's released and people love it what was that experience like for you working on Mulholland Drive as the pilot? Was there promise of moving for the future? Because I'm sure, as an actor, you've been in a lot of pilots over the years that have never gotten picked up. Yeah, yeah, that's sort of every actor who's lucky enough to have that problem. But the experience of working on it was pretty incredible. I mean, it really felt like we were doing a movie. Maybe that's because it was Lynch and the way, you know, it didn't feel like TV. And you can't forget, sort of, Twin Peaks came along at a time now... TV and movies, I mean, I think television is better than movies, and I think at this point, and I think there's so many TV shows that feel like movies. But back then, that wasn't the case. You know, this is what people don't... Twin Peaks was really revolutionary, but even when we made Mulholland Drive, you know, there still weren't AMCs, and there weren't all these, you know, H- like HBO still didn't have great stuff. It was before Sopranos. It was before, you know, it was such a different time. The experience of making it really felt like I was making a film, and working with him was a absolute dream he is he is so special and talented and of another world um i really have only positive amazing things to say but it was exciting and then you know it not getting picked up was sad and then to go back and all of a sudden you know go and i went back and shot there's my whole scene which was for the pilot and then i Naomi Watts sees me in the diner toward the end of the movie, just sees me standing at the cash register. It's a shot of me. That was reshoots for the, to make it into a movie. You had to do your whole I had a dream about this place speech for both both instances? No, 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 no. We just shot that. That was the pilot. A lot of the movie, I'd say a good majority of it, is the pilot. A lot, a lot is the pilot. And then uh, a lot of the additional stuff added on. You can tell when you watch it probably – 
the stuff that wouldn't have been allowed on ABC. So there's just a shot, this little moment of me at the end of the movie, like last 25 minutes, and that is what I went back and did reshoots for. That must have been interesting to suddenly have this project that you probably thought was dead Mm -hmm. suddenly get new life. Oh, beyond. I mean, this is the way this business works is something's over, it's over. Which is so interesting is now there's a lot of like stuff coming back with, you know, Gilmore, like Netflix just buying Full House and sort of read like there's a lot of that going on now. But back in the day, yes, when something was over, it was over. You know, you've moved on. And so getting that letter that um, it was being turned into a film was awesome and exciting. And then the final product was just great. Well, even to go back and and work with Lynch again, I mean, I don't know how much veracity there is to it, but I've read that you are going to be in the new Twin Peaks as well. I I can say that. That is is probably all I I can say. Now that it's been everywhere, yes, I I can say I'm lucky enough to be a part of working with him again. It's interesting because you were kind of bouncing around. I mean, one of the things that isn't around as much as it used to be, is the world of independent films. I mean, of course, it is still there, but not in force like it was at one time. And, of course, you being in one of the most, and I know this almost sounds like an oxymoron, popular independent films of Ghost World, the same year that Mulholland Drive comes out, it's kind of like a little one-two punch for you. That's what I'm saying. It was a very odd, it's always been a very odd experience for me because the movies I've done have just taken off. And, and you know, there's a lot that haven't. And I've done many that haven't taken off. But it's, um, that Ghost World experience was great. And actually, my wife is in Ghost World as well. And we, we were dating back then. I mean, we've been together forever. But um, it's one of the few times we didn't work together in the movie, but we're in the same thing. And then a couple of times we worked together since then. But that was a great experience as well. Really, really great experience. But yes, having that in the same year. I forgot that was the same year. Obviously, you shot it at different times with the pilot and everything. Yeah, exactly. That's why it doesn't feel like that. But I guess they were released in the same year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there is the independent world has just sort of slowly gone away. I just um, wrote and produced my first movie that, I'm, that I star in. And um, we got a budget of half a million, which is basically... You know, nothing, but for me it was super exciting because I haven't done it before. And um, you, you just can't make a lot anymore with that. I know it sounds like it, 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 when I got it, I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be so thrilling to have this much money. But it goes in two seconds because it counts post-production and, and paying everybody. And you have we had 14 days to shoot, which is nothing. But we made it work. <laughs> but, Patrick, it's so easy to film things. You can just shoot it on your iPhone. Uh, I know, but not the way we did it. Cause it's, <laughs> but you know what's funny is you can. That's the joke. You can make something amazing for 50000 You can make something amazing for $10,000. I mean, but the movie I had the idea of, you can't because of the look. It's a, about a very rich family, and so you need money to make it look good. You were in, to me, another one of the great independents, and you were only in there for five minutes, but your role in Idiocracy is definitely, as soon as you came on screen, I was just like... That guy, I know that guy. That's yeah, that's the guy from Winkies, and it was so great to see. That's you another there. one. That's another weird one. I mean, I Mike Judge is great, and I got to work with him last year on Silicon, and again, and so he's fantastic. But when I did that, I was like, okay. And then the movie didn't do well at all, and but then got a crazy uh, subculture for that film. And right lately, it's amazing how many people come up to me. I think because our country is sort of spiraling out of control and maybe what that movie predicted is maybe going to happen. But um, it, it, it was a lot of, now it's been recently a lot of like, dude, idiocracy. And I'm like, really? That was another one. A very lucky, got that part and, you know, loved doing it and went to Austin for a day and 
So there you were as a six-year-old seeing Carrie, and all these years later, you're working with Brian De Palma on The Black Dahlia. How was uh, that? You know, it was an amazing auditioning for it. I got to just say to him, I, once again, he was another one for me. 1980, was my, I was obsessed with Dress to Kill. I was obsessed with Blowout. I still think they're great movies, and I think Carrie is brilliant. And so getting to meet him at the audition, I just, you know, I didn't even care if I got the part. I just told him, you know, look, you're, you've done such incredible work. And then next thing I know, I got it. And I got to sort of spend two months in Bulgaria working with incredible people. I mean, really, Dante Ferretti did the productions. I mean, it's, I don't know if the movie turned out to be exactly what everybody wanted it to be, but the experience was really fantastic. It's interesting that you were on Mulholland Drive, where I'm sure you get a lot of questions about it. And then you probably, and I don't know if the, if the questions tapered off, but you probably at one point were getting a lot of questions about Lost. Yeah, I'd say much more about Mulholland Drive question-wise. A lot of recognized from Lost, but I think it's funny. I think people sort of would Lost because it went on, you know, being a series and not a movie. The questions kind of stopped at a certain point for everybody, you know, but by the time I joined, by the fifth season, people let it just wash over them. They didn't have as many questions, but uh, very recognized. I was a huge fan of the show, so when I got cast in it, it was a great, exciting moment for me. And at the time, they, all they said is, look, it's this one episode. You know, I, I don't even think they knew. And I said, great, I don't care. I love this show. I'll come over to Hawaii. And then uh, next thing I know, it's four months later, and I'm still there. And, it was so much fun. It was the cast was fantastic. You know, Josh Holloway was, a, was a, just such a great dude. Everybody really was. And I, I, you know, working on shows I love doesn't happen often. I get to do a lot of TV, um, and often I've never seen the show <laughs> that I'm doing. But I just go ahead and have a fun time and bring what I can. But with those times that I've gotten to be cast on shows that I've been a fan of, that's a whole different world and is exciting. And at the same time to go back and watch the show when my run on it is over is a very weird thing. Cause it all of a sudden is no longer that same mysterious bubble, you know, Sawyer's now Josh, not Sawyer. You know what I mean? And that's a very, very weird uh, thing to experience, but you know, it's worth it. Has it ever soured you on anything? And you don't have to name names, but have you ever been on a show that you're a fan of and you're just like, yeah, I really don't want to watch this anymore now? No, luckily. Uh, Good. No, I've had some, you know, some experiences that probably if I watched that show, I'd never watch it again. But the ones that I've loved and gotten cast on, the experience has always been great. So do people come up to you with their Mulholland Drive theories and try to explain them to you or get them <laughs> or get you to confirm or deny things? That, that. Absolutely the latter. They want, they just want answers. I mean, it's amazing to watch. People just want me to tell them. They really want me to tell them what the movie means, what my scene had to do with it. They just, they desperately need answers. And, you know, I've had just such incredibly weird experiences with people. Uh, the weirdest one being when I was with my daughter, who's now seven, but I guess she was like three or four at the time. And we were at a supermarket and across the, like, from another aisle, a guy just was like, don't go back there. Don't go back there to me. And I, you know, I'm at a supermarket. I have no idea what he's talking about. I'm like, I'm sorry. He goes, don't for your life to save your life. And it was just, my daughter's freaked out. And I'm like, I, I'm like, I'm so sorry, dude. I have no idea. He goes, Mulholland Drive, man. And I'm like, Oh God, no, 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 no. Better ways to do it. Better ways to do it. But, um, for the most part, I'd say people really just come up to me and, and, and really want an explanation. And you know what? I just, I always say the same thing when they ask what it means. I really say it means whatever you want it to mean. Because whatever you, that is really how I believe, David, 
created this thing. I think he has whatever he believes, but I think he wants an audience to just make up their own mind and, and let it be what it is for them. Kind of really switching subjects really quickly here. What was it like playing Eugene Levy? <laughs> wow, that's been a long time since anyone's brought that up. I don't love playing real people, to be totally honest. And I really didn't want to do that job. And they, I, I did, I, I gave them for the time. I don't even know when that was. Was I like, I guess I was like 30. And I just, I threw the most stupid, you know, like, here, pay me this. Because I, I, I just really didn't want to do it. And they gave it to me. And I think they gave it to me because of my eyebrows, basically. I think, I really do. I think they were just like, he's got his eyebrows. We're not, because I, I got to be totally frank with you. I don't think I did a good job in it. It's, it's nothing I'm like crazy proud of. Like, oh, I really nailed him. Um, so the experience of doing it was fine. But looking back on it, I just, I, I, I look back not in a positive light. Because I think, ah, God, I really, I'm not the best imitator. And, you know, I could have I probably nailed him a little better. But I had the eyebrows, so what more do you want, I guess? If you have to be known for something, I, it could be worse. Oh, I'll take it. Look, I think, you know... I'm I'm proud of my eyebrows. I like them. That's what you mean, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you could be known for something horrible. Oh, you know? totally. Exactly. Believe yeah. me. No, no, no. I know. I mean, I've heard so many people just say different things to me about them, and they're they've always been this thick and this dark and this. I mean, they just haven't changed since I was, you know, eight. So they're there to stay. Do you have to like grow into those eyebrows? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, sort of middle school me was unfortunate looking. Oh, yeah, exactly. yeah. Be, and that happens to a lot of people, though. Yeah, I know. That is true. That is true. But I, I had everything going against me when these just grew up and got big. But uh, since then, I'm totally, you know, post-college, I was like, oh, these are all right. I'm good with them. Can you tell me more about your film? I want, I'm very curious about the, the movie. It's, um, it's called Beneficiary, and it is my take on um, Gaslight. I don't know if you've ever seen Gaslight, but oh, yeah. But, yeah, for anyone who hasn't, you know, sort of that Ingrid Bergman, it's basically about... Uh, four, uh, sorry, three grown children, sort of me being the oldest, who hire someone to drive their mother crazy to get their inheritance. And um, it's me and uh, Harriet Harris and Fiona Dorif and Rhea Kiltstedt, some really, really good actors. Um, my wife is in it. And we had a blast. And uh, it's, we're just finishing. I think we lo- we're locked, but I think we finish everything next week and it's directed by this um director anthony de blasi who's a sort of a horror film director he did a movie called dread um and has done a bunch of movies since then and uh he and i sort of partnered together to do this and i'm really super excited by it um this company mar vista paid for it so they they sell it once we uh finish finish but i think it could be great it's like a very uh hitchcockian thriller which i don't feel like there's a lot of anymore i think we live in the day and age of just pure horror films or sort of independent drama Oscar bait movies and this is like harkens back to Hitchcock or sort of the last time we had like in the 80s we had sort of Hitchcockian thrillers um, and this is kind of a real a real throwback so I'm super proud of it so is this pure thriller or is there comedy to it as well there's a little bit of comedy and I think the, everyone in the movie we cast it so wonderfully perfectly and everyone's so good it's, everyone's a little bit heightened tiny tiny 1% but a lot of people I gave it to read it thought it was like a black comedy so i didn't but i now watching it i'm like there's definitely some humor to it but for the most part it gets pretty dark toward the end but i would say yeah it's a thriller with a tiny little bit of black comedy 
since I've seen you on screen, I've known you've had really good comic timing. And then that was just proven out when I saw you on Mad Men. And I was like, yeah, this guy's a natural for this stuff. Yeah, so funny. A lot of people are like, you're a comedian, right? And I'm like, I'm not a comedian. Literally the other day, a woman at Ikea was like, oh my God, I know you're such, you're such a good actor, but you're mainly, you're a comedian, a stand-up, right? And I'm like, I am not, I've never, never would do stand-up. I would only ever do stand-up for a movie. It terrifies me. Mad Men was, uh, you know, an utter dream. It is... It is and was the, one of the jobs I look back on and I'm so grateful for. And he was such a great character to play. And I really, I like playing the ass. I like playing the jerk, which I get a lot. It's how Hollywood wants me to be now. You know, you get very boxed in. And the irony is I'm really a nice, like super nice guy. And uh, I never often play nice guys. Um, so doing that job, I think really really threw me into that but it was worth everything because i think he was such a complex character and i think you know i got to be funny i got to be sad and mean and and he was just an insecure dude and i think a lot of people used to come up to me when the show first came out and all my episodes aired and people were so mad women would come up and say i can't believe what you did to don and i uh, my response was always like well he screwed my wife how come no one's mad at him? But of course, you know, he's the six foot good looking anti-hero and you know, I was the, I was the jerk, but, uh, it was, it was a utter dream. That was another show. I was a huge fan of from that first season. So to get that call that I got, that was pretty outstanding. It's funny when I think about you as an actor and I, I don't want to sound like a jerk, like here's how, what you are to me. But when I think about your roles a lot of time, I think, of course, yes, you have played the jerk a lot of times, but I think about you in those kind of serial comic type roles. And then I also tend to think of you in like the kind of forties and fifties roles, of course, with like the black Dahlia and stuff. But then when you showed up in hail Caesar, I was just like, yeah, this is a natural you, know, you <laughs> totally, just yeah. have that kind of snappy patter really well. You know, you, you do that so well. I've done a lot of stuff like that. It's funny. I've done a lot of the period, you know, I did mob city, that show with Darabont, Frank Darabont did, which was, was such a great experience. He's another amazing guy. And then I did the L.A. Noir video game, playing Mickey Cohen. So, yeah, I have done a lot of that stuff. I also think it's my face. I think I just have a, a real period kind of face. That, you know, I would agree. I can find that banter pretty easily. And I've always wanted to work with the Cohens. And so that was the first time getting to work with that. That's another one. Just I could sit all day and not do anything, which I did often on many days, and really just watch them. And just, you know, they're pretty magical in what they do. They're kind of unbelievable. Yeah, it's not too many people that I know that have played both Meyer Lansky and Mickey Cohen. I actually probably don't think there's anybody. <laughs> I may be the only one. If I'm going to go out on a limb, I'm going to say I'm the only one. And, and that was a real bummer. The Mob City one was a disappointment because, you know, Frank had he said, look, season two is yours. And I was like, ah, oh, bring season two on to play Meyer Lansky more than just one episode. And then the show just didn't take, I think it was just too expensive for the network. And it ultimately, because I really thought, it did some great stuff, but I got to meet him and I got to work with him and he's, you know, he's a great dude. Yeah. He's hasn't had that great of luck with television, unfortunately. I, I mean, know, I, right? he, he was so great with the walking dead and then they get rid of him. It's like, come on guys. I know, I know. Not, not very respectful. I don't know the whole story or anything behind it, but yeah, he has not had a lot of luck with TV, you know, or movies at this point. It's so hard for all of these. I mean, that's why they're all going to TV. It's why, I mean, my guess is it's why he's stuck to TV. It's why Lynch is doing Twin Peaks again. The movie world is just, it's just, you know, Captain America and the Avengers or $3 million movies. There's just not a lot in between. 
Yeah, if you were going to be a superhero, who would you play? I'd be a villain. I would never want to be a superhero. They are so boring. I, I, I really mean it. I've gotten so, I was so into all those movies for so long, and now they just all look the same, and I really feel like they all are the same. All the characters, all the, all the movies, it feels like just one movie I keep going to that's just a continuation of, you know. So for me, it's always been the villain parts that I've been, you know, most interested in. And something like Suicide Squad looks interesting to me. But, um, yeah, no, no, I don't, I've never even had any interest in being a superhero. I guess when I was a kid, but uh, I probably just wanted to be in a horror movie at that point. Yeah, I have to say you were very good as the Waffle Nazi and uh, Pushing Daisies. Yeah, that was fun. That was really fun. That was uh, wearing those costumes. That that was a cool show. I really that was another show my wife and I really loved, and I feel like was maybe before its time or, or something. But I had a blast doing that. That was a very cool experience. Yeah, that was one of those where I kind of wish they would pick that up for whatever cable or, you know, uh, paid service type thing. Yeah, that's a show that I really, I would tell my friends about and people would be like, I don't get it. And I'd be like, you got to just watch this. It's really cool. It just, you know, it just didn't take off in the way it deserved to. Yeah, you've been in so many things for over the years. What have been some of your favorites? God, we've covered a lot of my favorites. I mean, I, you go you go from sort of Marl and Drive to Mad Men. Those are, those are you know kind of my top, I would say, those two. But, I mean, really, God, a lot of what we said. I had a really good t- uh, time doing Californication. Uh was a show I had a really lovely time doing, and, and Duchovny is oh, just a great guy. Um, and that was a really fun part, and I got to just, you know, throw myself in there crazy. I really have to say I really, really liked doing that. You know, I did the show Once Upon a Time last year. Do you know that show, that fairy tale show on ABC? Oh, yeah. I have to tell you, it's not a show I watch. My daughter now is obsessed with it because I was on it, so I asked her if she wanted to watch it. So we started from the beginning, and she loves it, and her little seven-year-old friend, they love it. And I just got to go up to Vancouver, and you got to be so heightened. A lot of what we do as actors is often very you know, low-key and very real, and you know, it's been a great experience doing that kind of stuff, but this was all a little bit heightened, and to live in this sort of other world, that was a really... Really great, great experience. And what are you working on these days? I know you got the movie that you're working on, but uh, have you played anything recently? Well, the show I the the show that must not be named. You know, I finished, um, and uh, my movie has been taking up most of my time. And I'm I, I recur on Suits, so I just went back. I just got back from Toronto um, about two weeks ago because uh, I, I went back. I hadn't done it in three years, so I got to uh, got to go back and do that, which is fun. And uh, now, you know, looking for the next thing. This is what this is what the life is. You kind of, it all the, these jobs just come out of nowhere. You don't. You all of a sudden are like, well, what's next? And then you get a call like you and I can hang up, and I get a call being like, oh, here's what you're going to do, or here's an offer we have for you. Which is all very crazy when you become a dad like that. It all it all shifts, but it's all worked out great. You know, with my kid, like I get lots of time with her, and then. You know, I'll be in Vancouver for four months, and she'll come up and visit me. Well, how do you balance that with your wife? Because she's an actress as well. We balance it pretty well. I got to say, the universe has treated us fantastically. <laughs> it is, it is, it is not shown us. I mean, the rules are like if one of us is away on location for a while, the other one just can't take a location job because we can't both be away on location. You know, she did True Blood in Los Angeles for five years, so she was here, so I was able to you know take whatever came my way. So now it's really worked out. I have to say, we've been really fortunate it's great that she was able to take a series like that and it definitely you know we're talking about how so much of this is moving towards television it must be nice if you can get those roles where you can just kind of stick around for a little while oh it's fantastic i mean i don't really want to be on a bad 
TV show <laughs> as a regular. I don't want to be locked into without naming certain, you know, some of the network shows that are out there, those procedural, those just are not interesting to me at all, that world. Like, I'll go make a guest appearance on them, no problem, or recur on them when I'm not locked in. I don't, I'm not, I'm not a snob. But I don't, I want to get, yes, but now we're in an age where there's so much, with, you know, Hulu and Amazon and, and Netflix, and there's so much content and there's so much good content that it's a really exciting time. I feel like it's getting, you know, more and more exciting. And at the same time, we also have, you know, Reese Witherspoon and Nicole Kidman doing HBO. You know, so it's also the movie television line has completely blurred. I mean, there's very few people who now don't do, you know, you have a handful. But everybody else just, you know, everyone's jumping into TV now. <laughs> well, good luck with everything. And uh, I'm really curious to see your film. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much. It was such a, a pleasure talking to you. I really, you're very knowledgeable and you asked me some good questions. It was fun. You can often do interviews. I often have in many of the years and you are asked about the same thing, but you can tell when someone's just asking them or when they really have knowledge of what they're asking or, you know, I just, I thank you. It's nice to do ones where you feel like, oh, this is a good conversation. To admit, I was a little nervous talking to you because I've been a fan of yours since almost one of your first film roles. The Forbidden Dance. Yes, I was. Oh uh, my God, that's so great. You survived the Lombada Wars. <laughs> you know, that is one film that I consistently get recognized for. And it's very surprising to me because it's been so many years. But that, that film, uh, it was beautiful, innocent, you know, a little sexy. And um, people stop me about that film sometimes um they did a lot until Mulholland Drive and then a lot with Gossip Girl with that tv show Gossip Girl I get stopped a lot so there's certain shows certain films that really attract an audience and it kind of lingers in their mind I'm just very happy that I've had these kinds of experiences and been involved in these kinds of projects even if you hadn't decided to become an actress, it seemed like you lived such a life before you were even out of your 20s. Just like <laughs> I have lived a very, very, very fun-filled, fulfilling life and a lot of adventures, you know, so many. And uh, many people said to me, your life is a movie. You should tell your story. But it's so complex, you know, and I find that it's very difficult to put a real life story on film. I'm a perfectionist, very meticulous. So I just, you know, it, it, I'm a very private person. So I, it doesn't seem like a good idea. But in terms of living as a human being, it's wonderful. I mean, I feel like I'm, I could leave tomorrow and, and have a smile on my face. <laughs> I just feel, I feel really good. I, you know, I think we regret the things we don't do. And so I had a very strong mom and she always encouraged me to travel, to see the world. And I've traveled the world three times. I've, you know, been in very scary and dangerous situations. 
but something always rescued me. Something always helped. And so I have a really deep sense of trust that things happen the right way, that we are somehow guided. And therefore, when you have that belief that everything is perfect, you're no longer looking back, regretting in the past. You're just in the present. And I, and I believe that happiness is in the present. And that's what I like so much about working with David Lynch is that he lives very much in the present because I guess the meditation that he does and he never misses, you know, meditation. Working with him is living in a different world, but a very beautiful, centered, loving and artistic, creative, dark world that is very fascinating. It, it does transport you to his world. And I love life with all its variations and colors and expressions. That's what makes me feel fulfilled as an artist and as a person. I'm just very lucky. You know, I feel very, very blessed uh, to have had the experience in film and in my personal life that I've had. Worked with some amazing people like William Hurt and John Travolta and Forge Whitaker and Naomi. And, um, you know, I just feel very, very, very happy. Well, I was surprised when I read that you had been shot in the head before. <laughs> oh, my God. I've been shot in the head. I've been kidnapped. You name it. Oh, my God. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, the shooting in the head was very interesting. I was 12 years old. It was a 45. It's a very powerful bullet. Very big. Very powerful uh, bullet. And there's very few survivors of a 45. And I remember that in itself was was a moment in a movie. It really was. Everything moved in slow motion from one minute to another. I felt as if a sling blade had had gotten me like a rock. Um, had somebody thrown a, a rock with a sling blade, and then there was a very large, dull sound in my head. Very, very loud. Almost like a, an alarm in a building, but very low, low-key. Behind that sound were my thoughts. And, of course, in the blood gushing out, you could hear bloop, 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 bloop. It was like a sound in my head. And my mom praying in Spanish with a white sweater pushing down for the blood not to, you know, get, uh, to try to contain the blood. What I remember thinking was, this is it. I haven't done anything with my life. I, I remember just really being in peace, really at peace, thinking this could be... This could be my exit. But I wasn't scared. I wasn't scared at all. I just was in disbelief. And then, you know, we went to the hospital and everything was fine. <laughs> yeah, it was a stranger. I came out in the newspaper that, you know, 12-year-old survives a gunshot wound. I had it somewhere. And um, I'm, I just started social media and somebody told me I should post that at some point. You were Miss USA. But when did the desire to become an actress come about, or did that kind of just come from something else and then you ended up in that world? How did that happen? So what happened was the producers and the director, Burt Kennedy, of a movie called The Alamo, 13 Days to Glory, with Raul Julia, they, one of them, I don't recall which one, was watching the Miss USA pageant, and they saw me kind of waving, saying goodbye at the end of my year. And they said she would be perfect to play Raul Julia's wife, 
young life. And so they called, I guess, the Miss USA people. And um, I had just moved to L.A. I got I got completely lost. I got totally lost. I was late for about an hour. And I went in very well-dressed, very confident. You know, I, my, I had just been Miss USA. And... Um, and there were a lot of ladies in the room, and I and I walked kind of aloof, and I said, "Why did you want to see me? There's a lot of women out here that want to be actors." <laughs> they liked my attitude, you know, and I got the the part. But when I was on set, I, I didn't know what to do, so I was asking the other actors. It was a completely new experience for me. Then when I saw Raúl Julia doing a scene playing Presidente Santana and his voice was so beautiful and he was breathing and he just, oh, he said these words. There was such magic in the air. You could hear a pin drop. I was hiding under a little table because it was a very small set and they didn't want extra people there, but I was so fascinated by him. I was making myself invisible, you know, rolled up in a little ball, just watching him and I caught the acting bug. I knew like every cell in my body said, this is what I want to do. And the producer said, you really have an, a quality. You take direction really well. You have a, a, a special magic. Let me get you an agent. And so they recommended an agent, and I started going on auditions completely unprepared. I didn't know anything about acting, and I said, you know, this doesn't feel right. I dropped the agent, and I started studying. Yeah, and then I didn't know how difficult it was to get an agent. <laughs> so then I was struggling to get an agent. That's, and then I started uh, hosting for a bit. I did a VH1 jobs for MTV and just, you know, a bunch of hosting in Spanish and English. And and then I auditioned for something. You know, my first few auditions, I guess, The Forbidden Dance was one of them. And then another a TV show, I think, in Mexico, but in English, an English TV show shot in Mexico. And, and that's how, you know, I started doing theater in the downtown arts district when Joanna Ray called for me to go in to see David. That was a really fascinating story that she, that, you know, my manager called and said, David Lynch wants to see you today. And I was in workout outfit. I was working out. And I was like, I can't see him today. I can see him tomorrow. But I was so elated that um, I got in a car accident. And, um, you know, I was so excited. I didn't want to, you know, go through the lawyer thing or anything. I let the guy go. And it was a very magical because I don't remember if he hit me or I hit him. But we were in a great mood and we decided not to pursue anything. We just like... And um, the next day I went to see David. I was waiting and his executive assistant said, are you familiar with the script? And I said, no, I haven't read it. And she said, your character has an accident in the opening of the movie. And I went, wow, that is so crazy. And I told her, I said, uh, I had an accident on the way over here. And I just had a good feeling, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it was a very, the whole thing, the, the entire process uh, was magical. I mean, David's voice is very deep and beautiful, and he just looked at me when I walked in the room, and he just said, good, good. He said, good, good, good. And it was, I started giggling, you know. Joanna Ray was in the room with me, and we we just giggled because it was so cute. Once you got the role of Rita, how did you go about preparing for it? Putting your mind in blank is a very difficult thing to do. And the only thing I could come up with was 
really get into a meditative state. And I love working on film because you have that those few seconds to prepare before each scene to put your mind in blank. And I just feel that it really helps so that you're in total feeling and not in thinking. You know, you already know the lines. You're, I know every line before I get on, you know, on a set. I like to know them all. So I believe that inspiration comes from that quiet space between the thoughts. And so I just was trying to keep my mind very quiet. So, for example, if we're very, very quiet right now, we just stop to hear the sounds of the room, your mind does go blank for a bit. It's very relieving. It's just so wonderful to have that silence inside. And that's that's what I did. I followed his lead. He always directed me in similes. One of the, the ones I remember the most is walk like a kitty cat, Laura. <laughs> when I was walking up the stairs, and there was always like a black cloud following me when I was scared in the beginning part of the film. And, um, you know, with Lynch, it's very easy with David. It's just very, very easy because he's so specific. And when a director knows exactly what he wants and, you know, he sees it in his head, it's very easy to follow his lead. I think the trouble starts when, when a director's not sure, then, you know, you have to make your own decisions and, um, you know, and that's what we're paid for. So, but um, I do like working with very specific directors. It's just much easier. Now, was that the first pilot that you had ever worked on? No, I think I had done, uh, oh, I did a, the spinoff of Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, California, it was called, for one of the networks. I think it was CBS. I had done, you know, a few guest stars, but as a series regular, it was California and then uh, Mulholland Drive. Obviously, the the goal is to get the pilot made, to get the pilot sold. Is there talk about when this happens, we will do X, Y, and Z? Was there any kind of future plan after that? Or is that just the, the goal is to go in there, do the best that you can, and hope that it sells? Oh, you're right. You don't know. They, they keep you in suspense, which is the reason I find television so exciting and um, also keeps you on your toes, they can change their mind. You know, there can be, it just depends because the audience, they might write for one character to be the star and then the audience really likes another character. And so that character pops and the storylines change. I think they have a Bible. They have, I forget how many seasons written already. Um, But, you know, as an actor, uh, they don't like to tell us because they like that freedom and they like to have that freedom. And, you know, it's very vulnerable. You don't know what they're going to write for you. Um, I find that television is very exciting, though. I know a lot of filmmakers don't like television, but I, I find it I find it really exciting. I think there's some great shows lately. And, um, you know, I started binge-watching on Netflix years ago. <laughs> and it's just fun. You know, it's just really, really fun. Well, you've been in some terrific shows. I mean, a lot of people owe The Shield as being one of those shows that really kicked off this, I don't want to call it a new wave of television, but this longer form storytelling that gave us things like Breaking Bad and some of these other shows. Right, so. that's the, um, the little bit of a bad hero, <laughs> which, you know, is so exciting to watch, really. I think, um, 
there's so many expressions in life. There's so many ways to express life. I don't know why people run away so much from the darker characters. Um, I think playing dark characters is really fun. You know, it really is very, very complex and, and, and you have to find the heart in it because there's always heart because love is underneath everything. And so that's the challenging part that even if it's not written that way, that you find the heart and the soul and the vulnerability because I just believe that no matter how dark a person is underneath it, there's just a lot of pain and they want to cry. If you can find that in your character, I think it becomes multidimensional and really just fun, just fun to play all these different aspects. When you found out that Mulholland Drive wasn't going to be a television show, was there any sort of emotional like letdown when that happened or were you just kind of, I have to pick up and move on to the next job? It's interesting you ask that, Mike, because I didn't believe that it was dead. And David said it's dead in the water. And I, for whatever reason, I just felt that it was going to resurrect. And I no, I didn't know it was going to be an international feature film. But I didn't think it was dead. I just had feelings, you know. And um, and sure enough, you know, sometime later, he announced that it was going to be an international feature film. And that there was going to be nudity. <laughs> And then I shook his hand and agreed. <laughs> what was the moment like when you get the phone call, okay, it's back on? He actually had Naomi and I go up uh, and visit him. He told us in person. He's one of those directors that really likes actors. And, you know, you feel so safe. Yeah, so he, he, he told us in person. He had his, he's just amazing, really. He had us read um, the script in person. And uh, it was just wonderful. We, we saw the first, uh, we saw Mulholland Drive the first time in his house also. So um, he's just very protective like that. Yeah, and it was uh, when he said it was going to be an international feature film, I was elated because I've always loved cinema. I just was very surprised and I was very nervous about the love scene. But um, as I said, he's very thoughtful, careful. He makes you feel very safe. I was on the verge of tears before I did that, but he showed me the loop and he showed me how dark it was going to be. I felt you know, much better, like taken care of, like it was going to be okay. It wasn't, you know, it was very classy, very dark. Well, yeah, you put yourself out there so much like that. And, and it, it's a wonderful, wonderful scene. And it, well, for me, having been familiar with the pilot, it kind of, it's like, wow, this never would have been on television. <laughs> How are you familiar with the pilot? Well, I, I had uh, managed to get a copy of it on, this dates me, on VHS uh-huh. after it had gotten, um, you know, turned down by the network, I scoured and finally managed to find a copy. No, you yeah. didn't. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. You are out of control. <laughs> <laughs> you, looked at, you looked for it online and you found a copy of the pilot? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. You know, it's so funny. People always are asking me what was edited out. Out of the hundreds of interviews I've done, and I, you know, I'm, First of all, I don't remember exactly, but second of all, David's very private, so I would never betray his trust like that. So I always say I'm not allowed to tell you. I'm under oath. You know, I vowed not to. But out of all the journalists, there was one who figured it out himself, and he he wrote about it. And I'm not going to tell you who so you can find it. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, yeah, out of all of them, well, he's not sure, which is a good thing, you know, because he can't be sure. But he, he kind of um, guessed. It's 
two years, roughly, between when you're shooting the pilot and when you're shooting the feature. What was that experience like, kind of coming back and, and becoming Rita again, and then even going farther, becoming kind of more Camilla Rhodes at that point as well? I really enjoyed playing Camilla Rhodes. I come from a matriarchal family. You know, my mom is very, she was very strong. She's very strong. She was independent from her family when she was very young. She got a job extremely young, you know, and she decided to study English on her own. She got her own ride across the border to the American school. I mean, she's just, you know, headstrong. And in those times, it was a big deal. And so for me, I felt more comfortable. It, it, it just felt great. I didn't have to cry and be lost. And, you know, when I was filming, you know, the other parts and when I was um, playing Rita and very um, scared with amnesia, frightened and terrorized by, you know, the feeling that people were, you know, following me and not understanding why I had the money and all, all that part. I took it with me. I was very young at the time. I took it with me and I couldn't sleep. I felt nauseous. You know, it was difficult to film that. It was it was difficult. But Camilla Rhodes, piece of cake. <laughs> In control, very uh, sensual. And, you know, she's a woman that she knows the most powerful force in the world is sexuality. And so she owns it. And it's liberating to play this this type of character. It's it's fun as a woman to express your female power. The way that I believe is we have this one life to live. You know, express who you are. If you're not going to be yourself, who is? Like Hitchcock said, <laughs> I'm not going to be myself, who is? How often do you get asked, what does the film mean? A lot. <laughs> A lot. You know, everyone wants to understand the interpretation, if their interpretation is a correct one. And truly, I cannot speak for the filmmaker. You know, he wrote it. I understand my version of it, but I cannot, I cannot know exactly what theme he was going for, what he wanted, you know, what he was trying to say. I can only go by my interpretation, but yes, I get asked that all the time. And I have heard crazy interpretations, wonderful interpretations. I've had a psychologist come up to me and you know, write me a whole essay on uh, Mulholland Drive. <laughs> it's very fascinating. It really is. But I just love the element that, of illusion. And he, he works with sound so beautifully. And, you know, he's a master filmmaker. He's one of the few outdoors left in the world. You know, he's very private. So I can only kind of assume what he meant with the film, but I can never be sure. And he wouldn't want me to explain for him it's not my place just i'm just an actor <laughs> but it sounds like he treats his actors well very well everyone loves lynch he's a master filmmaker and he he works with actors really well there's never a moment where he loses his patience he's extremely loving he's extremely kind and i feel very very fortunate i really really do his kindness is inspiring, really is. I mean, we, we waited one, one time for one of the actors who wanted to go home, one of the older actors wanted to go home and pick something up from the house, and he was so loving, you know. wasn't Anybody else would have been stressed and, or holding up production, but he, he, it wasn't me, it was, it was someone else, and it was, um, it was beautiful. 
And when I, I said that somebody had complained that I was, you know, my weight, and he said, don't you lose one pound, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> so he's beautiful like that. He just makes you feel like you're perfect. I'm not going to ask for specifics because it sounds like you're, you're slightly uncomfortable about discussing the differences between the two, which is absolutely fine. But I am curious, did you have to reshoot anything in order to help shape this from a pilot into a feature? Because I know, of course, you shot a lot of new things, but did you have to go back and tweak anything that you had done before? I know that he did magical editing. Mary Sweeney did a beautiful job and he spliced it all together. Um, I'm not at liberty to say what we shot and what how he put it together, but you know he he created magic with everything. I know that he wrote you know some extra things that we shot, and um, he just kind of pieced it together. So we were in awe when we first saw it. You know when we saw it in his house, we were in awe right after. And at the festival in Cannes, he had prepared us, and he said, "Girls." Our creativity is our creativity. You keep your chin high, whether they applaud or they boo. You walk out with your head up, your chin up. So he had prepared us that they, you know, they might not like it and that art is for the artist's sake, it's expression. But sure enough, there was a lull after the film finished and we all kind of looked at each other. There's some photos where we're kind of looking at each other like, what's happening? And a few seconds passed and then there was a, a roar and a standing ovation. It was one of the most magical moments, really, in my movie history, anyways. It was so much beautiful energy of love and respect. And, you know, I, I that's the reason I love acting. I love acting because it transports people to another world. You know, it can educate, but it also illuminates, it inspires, sometimes it makes you cry. And I feel very privileged um, to be able to entertain people in that way and, and, you know, have them forget their problems and their issues. Or Sometimes we learn from film, and but definitely changes you if it's well done. And I'm just such a film lover that, you know, like my mom always says to me, and she's so adorable. Everyone loves her. She's a big, she has a big, big heart. And she studied with, with uh, one of the best Jungian analysts, Dr. Brew Joy. When she always says to me and is um, I'd rather see a bad film than no film at all. <laughs> <laughs> and you know it's true when you love when you love movies, you can sit through a bad film. It's better than no film at all. You know. Had you been a fan of your namesake of Rita Hayworth before you you took the role? I was actually when I did the Forbidden Dance Lambada. I went to promote it in in New York, and I remember somebody asked me who my favorite film star was. And I said, Rita Hayworth. And she laughed at me. <laughs> like it was, you know, she really made me, I, I just, I was so embarrassed. And it was such a surprise years later that Roger Ebert compared me to her and the International Herald Tribune. Even though I was very touched and shocked, nobody can be compared to those legends. You know, it really is true. I mean, they're... It's, goddesses and I don't believe that anybody of this day and age can be compared to them and I like to be me but it was definitely an honor. Gilda I mean that strong female power is so enticing for people to see because we're so taught that one, that women should be 
quiet. You know, I mean, I know times are changing, but we're so taught not to express that flirtation, not to be full of life and loud and dancing. And, um, you know, people get very judged from that energy when, you know, when a woman owns her power, she's very powerful. And it's very, very threatening to uh, men and women because desire is something that's extremely powerful. I mean, when a man wants a woman, you will spend a lot of time and energy to get her. In one of your other early roles, you worked with another of my favorite directors, working with Monty Hellman on uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. How was that experience? Wonderful. Monty was wonderful. Oh, yes. And, you know, that was at the very, very beginning of, of my career. And I remember being scared on set. The images and everything. It's a fascinating genre, the horror thriller. It's so wonderful that people like to be scared. <laughs> you know, it really is. I remember as a teenager, I loved to be scared. Yeah, it has such a big following, the, uh, the horror. You're a big horror fan. It's funny because we get lumped in with horror podcasts, and I'm like, well, we try to cover a lot of stuff, but it's one genre that I enjoy of many. Yeah. You know? And what is it, the anticipation of the scare? Yeah, the, the suspense and, and seeing how it's crafted, I think. Mm, yeah, the suspense is wonderful. I mean, I love having my heart race, and then when I jump, I laugh, you know. <laughs> but I, I don't go to see them very often because I do, it, it stays with me. I get scared at home. <laughs> I get nightmares and stuff. So. so Mulholland Drive, definitely, I mean, you had already been on the map. You had done so much work before that, but that really seemed like now you were forced to be reckoned with. At least that's how I saw it after the, the film came out. You know, you, you, you really had even more presence. Yes. How did that affect you, you know, having your name, you know, being, I mean, you had already been on magazine covers like crazy, but here you are, you know, being recognized for this tremendous film, this, this award-winning movie, you know, a Criterion edition of it just came out. So it's, you know, it's a big thing. How does that affect you? Uh, the quality of the magazines was just a better quality. It was, you know, I was in Vogue, Elle, in style, Cosmopolitan. And before I became an actor, I wanted to be a model, but I never had the height or the petiteness. <laughs> you know, you have to be very, very tall and very, very skinny. And so Mohan Drive fulfilled a lot of uh, things for me. It wasn't just, you know, the acting part of it, the craft that I love so much. It's also, I love promoting films, you know, at the film festivals. I really enjoy that process especially the, the nice ones. Um, the good ones, the fun ones, and some really wonderful film festivals. The magazine layouts, you know, the uh, editorial photo shoots were wonderful. I mean, being, you know, all the beautiful clothes. It's just a, a woman's dream come true. I love that part. However, there's a very private side of me also. And so there was a little bit of a conflict inside because I'm very, very private. And I do like to get my photo taken for magazines and whatever, but I'm not really uh, so comfortable having my photo taken, for example, on an airplane or at an airport or when I'm not really wanting my photo taken at the grocery store. And nowadays, everyone has a camera out on their, you know, in their hand. <laughs> There's a big invasion of privacy. I mean, if you go to the gym and somebody's photographing you or videoing you, it's, it's an invasion of privacy. So that's the part that I think it really worked out really, really well for me in that I had 
uh, some recognition. I had respect. I did some photo shoots. But I didn't explode uh, to the point where uh, I was a household name and everyone was, you know, photographing me wherever I went. So that was very, very nice. So I got to work more. And, of course, yeah, I'd like to be in the $100 million films. I really would. I mean, that's the other part. But the privacy is it's a, it's a beautiful thing to be anonymous. It really is. I think famous, really overrated. I want to know how you got involved with rabbits. <laughs> Somehow I knew you were going to ask that. Nobody asks me about rabbits. It's so cool. Well, no, he just asked me to, to do the show for him. David and so we went to his house and and we put on our little rabbit outfits. <laughs> My mother was five days in labor with me, so I was a little claustrophobic, and I was a little claustrophobic in the outfit. So I kind of closed my eyes and breathed really deeply and slowly um, because there was just one little opening at the end where the where the mouth is, and uh, I survived. It was it was wonderful. How long did it take to shoot all that? I don't remember. I don't recall. It was a lot of fun, though. I do remember that. It was great fun. <laughs> Talking about horror, I mean, that kind of blurs the line a little bit to me just because it was so freaky. <laughs> what do you mean, blurs the line? Well, I, I remember seeing it late at night when it was, because originally it was on his website, I believe, and just watching some of the chapters of that, it just was so offbeat and to have these you know anthropomorphic rabbits and everything watching that late at night you know it's kind of like watching Racerhead late at night where you're just like you don't really feel like you want to go to bed afterwards you know <laughs> oh so horror does affect you so you're human <laughs> you know I never watched the, sh the show so I really I, I don't know there's a lot of projects that I do that sometimes I don't see and it's because I am one of those actors that is hypersensitive and hypercritical. So sometimes I just do my job. I let everybody else watch it. And I just didn't know where I could get access to it. So I, I didn't ever ask uh, David for it. Um, so I never actually saw it. But filming it was very trippy. I mean, really, really trippy and fun, but very strange and wonderful at the same time. Okay, here's a nerdy question for you. When it came to Inland Empire, did you have to shoot anything new for that, or was it just basically an integration of what had already been shot? Um, I didn't know what the schedule was. I was just told when, when to come in, and I, and I shot my piece. Yeah, so I, wasn't, I didn't read the entire script. It was, you know, David's process is David's process, and I came in at the last minute and um, ended uh, my little piece where I sat at the end, right? I'm curious what you're working on these days. Well, I finished a movie that I shot in, in Barcelona, which was really crazy. It's the remake of L'Interieur. L'Interieur, you know, it's a French new, new wave horror film. And very, very gory. It's considered one of the goriest films. But we, we reshot it into a more of a thriller with Rachel Nichols. And, you know, filming in Europe is lovely. I love filming in Europe. It's very different. And Barcelona is such a city that really is just supportive. There's so many things to do. It's so lovely to be there. Physically, it was very challenging. Emotionally, it was very challenging. It was the most challenging film I've ever shot. But, you know, I play the, the villain and um, crazy fun. <laughs> really crazy. Yes. Crazy fun. Crazy fun. It's opening at Sitges. 
Oh, that's terrific. Yeah. Do you get to go for that? They did ask me to go. Um, it's in the same weekend that um, there's a couple of events over here, so I'm not sure that I'll be able to make it. Out of all the weekends, it was a, a week. It's the weekend that um, David is having his uh, Festival of Disruption. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, so October 7th through the 9th is his uh, thing, and the film is... Um, is premiering on October 7th, the opening of Sieges. So, and then there's another thing in Vega, so um, it's very crazy. Well, yeah, that is an intense film and an intense role to play. That must have been kind of exhausting to do all that. You know, it was very exhausting, and the director just had a very uh, different way of filming. The thing about um, filmmaking that I find is that you grow as a human being, and those that's how I choose which projects I want to be in is do I want to be in that country and film? I want experiences, you know, to, to make me grow as a human being. It's about the character, the role, of course, if I can bring something to it, if I resonate with it. But it's about growing as a human being and experiencing different things. Because I do believe that putting ourselves into unique, new experiences is what makes you feel fulfilled and what makes you feel alive and what makes you feel happy. So always doing the same thing isn't what makes us happy, the comfort zone. It's expanding our comfort zone. And so because of that, I'm very, very happy that I, that I lived those experiences. I'm very, very happy that I did that. I feel like I can do anything now because that was a challenging film and I was, you know, I was fine. So now I know I can do a lot more action. I know how to fight now for film really well. You know, I learned a lot. What more can you ask for? Well, and you can't get better than going to Barcelona. <laughs> exactly. Barcelona. I, I fell in love. I went and I had the Michelin star experience for the first time in my life. And that was, oh, they have, a, they have Michelin star restaurants there. And, they, and I went to two of them and they were both divine experiences. Like really, really special. Since you are uh, something of a polyglot, do you find yourself taking roles that are uh, Spanish-speaking roles as well as English roles, or are you primarily uh, in English-speaking films these days? I No, I actually I have done a couple of Spanish films. Um, I finished one in Santo Domingo, the Dominican Republic, which was also just a wonderful character. This one was just funny, a, a funny sociopathic. <laughs> She's so selfish. So selfish and um, just so crazy. And the wonderful thing about working with Felix Limbardo, uh, the director, was that he said to me, he goes, the government is helping us finance this, so there will be no suits on set. We are creatively free to do whatever we want. And I thought to myself, wow, that's unbelievable. You never have that where you can just do whatever. And so he would let me improvise. He wouldn't cut. He would let the camera roll. And I've never had that experience before. And I realized that I can be pretty crazy. <laughs> if the camera's rolling, you're not going to cut yourself. So a lot of crazy improv, crazy things, some of which um, I believe were left in the film. A couple things, you know, were cut out, but um, just really crazy can't wait to see that. They're looking for a distributor. Love Kills, that one is? Love Kills, yeah. I don't know. They've, they've probably changed the title because I'm not sure, but yeah, Love Kills. And then The Thinning is the first digital film that 
Legendary has um, done with Peyton List and Paul Logan, who are, you know, social media stars that have, I think, 51 million combined. And um, it's going to be premiering on YouTube Red. Yeah, I think that this is the future of film. And um, I'm new to social media. And, and it's, uh, you know, they told me that this, my, my team said, I think this would be a good thing for you to do. And I, I played a cameo. It was really fun to work with the kids. And when the trailer that I saw that you could see online, it looks fantastic. It's a, a futuristic film about overpopulation. Um, but the quality of the film, it looks like a, it looks like a $50 million film. It's amazing. Yeah, you know, some things in the, uh, in the burner. We'll see what happens. You've been so generous with your time, Aww. and I do really appreciate this. Thank you, Mike. I just had one more question for you. As far as, I know that you had a great time on uh, Mulholland Drive, okay. but I'm curious, what are some of your other favorite things that you've done? Where have you, where have you had other good times? You know, mostly all my films. I, I have a, oh yeah, I have a good time in a lot, a lot of the films that I do. I'm, you know, as I said, I, there's been some challenges physically, but, but I've had some really, really, really good um, filming experiences in my life. I'm very quiet and I stay, you know, I go into my dressing room and I'm like really focused and stuff, but the, the lighter films like Sex Ed um, are, you know, super fun. Then you're joking around on set all the, all the time. Um, but every film that I go to, I, I have a, I mean, I really enjoy what I do. And if you're not having fun, you're doing something wrong, right? <laughs> That's what I think. Life is to enjoy and to have fun. I think the purpose of life is to be happy and that nothing is so serious. It's, it's life is a game. And so do what you love and live life on your terms. That's Laura's philosophy to life. <laughs> All the best to you and your family, Mike. We are back, and we are talking about Mulholland Drive. I did want to give a little bit of a plug to our Showgirls episode. I talked to uh, Rena Riffle on that. Rena plays the prostitute who's by Pinkies. Um, there with Mark Pellegrino and another actor whose name I forget at the moment. And she talked about working with David Lynch on that. And uh, I have to recommend her interview. That was uh, a terrific discussion. And uh, also, if you want to hear a little bit more about making uh, Texas-style pornos, uh, talk to Frank Collison uh, recently for the uh, Elvira episode as well. So another terrific interview with another uh, great Lynch actor. God, I wish he would show up in more stuff because he's just uh, he was terrific. I mean, that scene, the, the big tuna Texas scene that you guys mentioned, that is definitely one of those, especially Jack Nance in that scene. My dog barks. Mentally, you picture my dog, but I have not told you the type dog which I have. 
perhaps you might even picture Toto from the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> Tell ye, my dog is always with me. <laughs> Not everybody loves Small Holland Drive. Mm-hmm. I found that out quite a bit. I didn't find a whole lot of negative reviews. I can't say that I went looking for them, but definitely uh, people reacted strongly to that movie. People might have referred to it as a uh, an offense against narrative order. Something about it. And I can see the point that, uh, Jed, I think you and I were talking about over the weekend as far as this being the, and you might have said it earlier, the, the kinder, gentler version of Lost Highway. And I think that both of them have a lot of merits, but I can definitely see where Lost Highway does have that great grit. It's a little bit more difficult to grab onto, and I appreciate that, even though I think that the split in the narrative is kind of more of a 50-50 kind of a split rather than, what would you guys call this, like a 70-30 kind of a split? Right, yep. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Lost Highway is to acid as Mulholland Drive is to mushrooms. Yeah, if you if you take that interpretation we were talking about before the break, uh, 70, 30, 75, 25 is probably about right if you take it as dream and then reality, more or less, right? Yeah, I think that's about right. Though I love that in that, what we could call reality, the way that it bounces around even inside of that. I love that there's a couple great match cuts in that section. The one where the uh, dishes fall and and, um, Diane kind of spins away from the conversation at the dinner table and it's interrupted by the broken dishes at Winkies. That's a really Mm -hmm. nice cut. And then the whole idea of her and her kitchen and her robe and cutting over and seeing Camilla standing there and her saying, you came back. And then the way that they cut again and it's Diane standing in the exact same place that Camilla was almost as if Diane were looking at herself. And really she kind of is, I guess, examining herself in that part of the film. But I love that use of, of really throwing us off as far as like, Oh my God, she just suddenly crossed over that what 180 degree line, but it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. That particular shot you're talking about with the eyeline match and it's her again, it's jarring. But at that point of the movie, you get it, right? <laughs> you get what's going on. <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, she's looking at herself. Oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, I agree. I don't know why I feel it necessary to do this, but I did want to humiliate one of the writers. I <laughs> talked about how I, um, you know, how we were reading all of these articles about Mulholland Drive. And there's one article that just drove me absolutely nuts. And I was amazed that not only is it out there, but it's also in, I think, the philosophy of David Lynch book. And, you know, we we all make mistakes. I mean, there was one article I was reading where they kept saying Diane Sullivan instead of Diane Selwyn. I'm like, okay, no big deal. You know, whatever. It got to be annoying after you read it 50 times and you're just like, couldn't check that and fix it by now. But there was one author who was talking about like yada 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 when Betty comes back home from an audition and finds Rita there. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's actually not true. She's coming home from the airport, but okay, I'll give that to you. And then later on, she's writing about stuff and she says, you know, Rebecca Del Rio, who's singing the Spanish version of In Dreams. And I'm like, whoa, um, Uh yeah, that's not right. Then she doubled down 
and started quoting the lyrics to In Dreams. I'm just like, come on. <laughs> it's like, really? Do you not know your Roy Orbison that much that you screwed those things up? And But then it is funny when I think about it that, oh, yeah, this is the second instance of somebody lip syncing a Roy Orbison song. And uh, But, God, the, the performance of Rebecca Del Rio – I guess she's singing, but she's not really singing. I love that whole idea of there is no no music, there is nothing is really happening in Club Silencio. But that performance of of, of crying in Spanish is just wonderful, and uh, another one of those moments that just gives me chills when I watch this film. Yeah, I think that scene's echoed by the the audition scene where we're told right up front, "This is an audition. This is you know." This is completely without context, yet we're wrapped up in the emotions of the scene that we see. You know, even though no I banda, uh, we understand it's it's all illusion. But uh, yeah, Silencio is uh, this. The whole movie seems to be packed with eight, nine, maybe ten just amazing sequences that could almost stand as short films on their own that people will come back to and talk about forever. Silencio probably the the top one or the cowboy yeah i like how both of you guys use the the cowboy as your opening lines <laughs> to this episode i was like there's definitely some fellow cowboy fans here absolutely so i know we talked a little bit about persona and i've definitely been harping on vertigo are there any other films that you guys think of uh as we're watching mulholland drive yeah i can't think of any at the moment because we talked about sunset boulevard persona right you said vertigo right I think Altman's Three Women definitely informs a lot of this film, though you could say that Three Women is pretty much a reinterpretation of Persona, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But that whole idea of shifting identities and stuff. And um, I found a neat little um, website called Jones Digest. I'll try to link to it in the show notes. And no real um, captions or anything, but it just is a whole bunch of images. And they've got images from Selene and Julie, which I did mention earlier. Daisies, which I found to be good because the two girls in that do kind of switch. And we have the dark-haired and the, the lighter-haired girls in that. And then the one that... And I, I'm ashamed that I've never seen this. There's a lot of images of gentlemen prefer blondes. Wow. So I still haven't seen mm-hmm. that one. But the pictures of, who is it, Rosalind Russell with uh, blonde hair kind of changing her persona. You know, that right next to an image of Rita and Betty standing in the mirror and looking at themselves when they both had the blonde hair. I was like, oh, yeah, I can guess I can kind of see that. Lynch is obviously very aware of film noir in general, right? He does a lot of that in uh, in Blue Velvet. You get a lot of uh, film noir framing and, and, and kind of um, references. And I think in this too, right, he's trying, he's trying to do that a little bit. And so you have a lot of mistaken identity Mostly of women, but sometimes of men in in a lot of film noir. And there's that one. Uh, what's that Humphrey Bogart film where he his face is red? He, he has he has dark passage. Dark passage. Yep. Yeah. So like a dark passage with uh, with Humphrey Bogart, you get that whole like his whole face is changed, right? You know. So you get a lot of these uh, as a trope in in a lot of film noir. So you, he's kind of doing that. You know, kind of as a whole genre. It's not. That's not. A, just a specific film necessarily, but you know the mistaken identity, you know the 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 lookalikes, you know things like that. I think there's, there's a lot of that going on too. And I could also kind of throw a performance out there as well, as far as the whole idea of the switching of identities, the malleability of identities, and that just even if this movie didn't have that that 
break towards the end or, or the, the, the silencio plus maybe it kept silencio. It didn't have the other stuff, but regardless, there's so many neat ideas of just the malleability of personas, especially being set in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just, uh, there's so many, again, that kind of opens it up to all of these different interpretations as far as who's who, what's what, you know, there was one, if I'm remembering right, there was one interpretation that was saying that Betty and Diane are not the same person, that they are two separate people. And I was like, oh, okay, that would be a neat way to read this as well. And we have seen that. I mean, we can talk about the Patricia Arquette character in Lost Highway. Is she the same person from the beginning to the end? Is that Alice um, and what was the the other woman's name, but being played by the same actress, is that the same character Mm -hmm. or could they be two different characters? And then you look at something like a Bunuel where he's using two actresses to play one character or Todd Solon's years later. I guess you could go in there and say, well, maybe Betty and, and Diane are two different people. Maybe Diane is really the waitress. I mean, there are so many blondes, you know, Rena Riffle talks in, in the showgirls episode about how many blondes there were on set <laughs> on Mulholland drive. I mean, cause we haven't really even talked about the waitress character who, whose name tag keeps changing depending on where she's at and the way that she looks, the way that, that Diane looks as far as, you know, looking really disheveled and, and the Betty, Betty Diane waitress can look either really super disheveled in some areas or very perky in other areas. And it's just another interpretation of, of different characters, I suppose. One of the takeaways of this film is, you know, um, like going back to like the, your, uh, the, uh, Obscure object of desire, right? That's what you're talking about, the Buñuel film, right? Or um, the narrative of Mulholland Drive is it's interesting to try to parse it out, but ultimately, I do think it, it's all about performance. It's all about Hollywood, uh, right? It's about this idea that, like you said, all these blondes that are almost interchangeable, right? Which you know, if you go to LA, you see a lot of you know, you know what I'm saying, right? Uh, a lot of interchangeable blondes, and I, I, I do wonder if there is a, there is even a core to these people where maybe they're all projections of something, right? Where maybe there is no center, <laughs> maybe there is no real kind of narrative underneath it, right? It's because because it's all about almost like simulacra, right? This idea of a copy of a copy of a copy and there's no there's no original anymore. You know, uh, that might be a little too far, but but you do get that sense of after a while of well, I'm never going to figure this out, so who cares? Like <laughs> you know, what's it about? It's about Hollywood, it's about artifice, it's about, you know, the weird goings on behind the scenes in Hollywood and, and it's about you know performance with no with no no basis almost what I'd really like to do is take the time to watch Mulholland Drive and David Cronenberg's Maps to the Stars and uh, Denis Villeneuve uh, uh, what's his name uh, the Canadian dude uh, Enemy with Jake Gyllenhaal I figure if you watch all three of those movies Back, you know, you got a thesis paper somewhere in there. <laughs> that's uh, they ha- seem to have a similar a similar logic to them, uh, and I'll deal with Hollywood in a in a way. And yeah, I I wish I'd done that for this. Sorry. What's the What's the last one? I'm sorry, I didn't. What was the last movie? Enemy with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal playing uh, double double roles. 
just a couple years old. Yeah, I don't know that film at all, so that's interesting. Yeah, uh, Maps of the Stars, though, I like. Yeah, that's good. Denis Villeneuve, I believe. Yeah. That came out the same year that Jesse Eisenberg was in a movie where he was, well, actually, a lot right. of the actors were doubled. Oh, yeah. And that was called The Double, right? The, uh, the Double, yeah. Yep. yeah. One person pointed out that, um, you know, this was May 99 and then again in, in 2001. And um, there was one author I was reading who was pointing out just how many movies about memory and reality i mean that's a a pretty common theme for a lot of sci-fi and and you know the movies that i enjoy watching pretty much they were pointing out uh winter sleepers by tom twiker mm-hmm, yeah. um memento was 2001 vanilla sky was 2001 of course there was a remake we know that and then the born identity was 2002 and it's just like well okay yeah there is a lot of stuff you know if you look at i mean and that's that's pretty much pop culture i mean memento was a breakout but the born identity you don't get much more mainstream than that you know talking about enemy which kind of flew under the radar for a lot of people i can't even imagine how many movies around that same time you know that we're not talking about well you know just to uh to add on to your list, you have uh, The Matrix of 1999, right? Yeah. You have uh, David Cronenberg's Existence, right, which is all mm-hmm. about doubling and, and all that stuff, right? And I think also 99, maybe 2000, maybe? You have Richard Linklater's Waking Life, right, which is all about dreams and reality, which I think is 2001, if I'm not mistaken, right? Uh, so you got Waking Life, Existence, The Matrix, <laughs> just, to, just to pile on a little bit, right? The 13th to, uh, floor. The 13th floor, yeah. yep, the 13th floor. That came uh, out. I think those were all the same year. Yeah, the, yeah, right around turn of the century, right? Yeah. So that yeah, that's interesting. So there's something in, there's some, something in the zeitgeist, right? Uh, that that Lynch really kind of capitalized on <laughs> with Mulholland Drive, perhaps. And that he was able to revisit the pilot and then add on to it, I think, was fantastic. And I'm sure that the Silencio stuff, and I probably have read that the Silencio stuff was the end of the pilot you know the same way that they had an end to the twin peaks pilot now the version of the pilot that i have that i've seen does not have that it actually ends with the the bum in the alley uh in a in a shot that we don't see in the finished film uh the 2001 film but i can really see that kind of you know because that was very similar to the way that he ended the Twin Peaks pilot as far as like, and here's all of this other stuff that you're just going to have to interpret, you know, just it, I mean, it, it goes into the whole thing of, you know, the, the pile of dirt with the necklace and the fire walk with me poem and all this kind of stuff, just all crammed into like the last five, 10 minutes of the film. And I can see Silencio being that where he's just like, okay. And then here's the rest of the themes of this entire show all within, you know, five, 10 minutes. Because, uh, yeah, he, he likes to do that. So knowing him, a lot of that stuff would have been the end of episode three. They might have <laughs> gone to Club Silencio. Right. You know. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> that's definitely true. I think it's a happy accident that this didn't get picked up and, and he made it into a, uh, a feature film because it's just enigmatic enough, right, that we can do all these readings of it. But what do you guys think? Would you rather have seen this as a as a series that goes for two seasons and gets canceled like Twin Peaks or would you are you glad that it's a movie I think it's fantastic as a movie I I had always toyed with that uh that tension of uh you know I like the movie but would I have loved the TV show even more 
until I saw the pilot last night and I thought the pilot, <laughs> like, I, I can understand why they didn't pick this up. It's not, you know, at least with Twin Peaks, you had, you had something concrete, like the murder mystery that everything uh, revolved around. Uh, but uh, this one seemed a little, uh, didn't have a whole lot of form to it as a, you know, especially as a pilot, as something that you're going to launch, launch from it, it. It was a little, a little mushy. A little mushy. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. He should do he should do a deal with Netflix. You know, I could see him doing a Netflix miniseries or something. That would be uh, that would be interesting. What they should do is bring back Twin Peaks and put it on like Showtime or something. Yeah, that'd be something, wouldn't it? Hmm. What a weird idea, Mike. Where'd you where'd you come up with that one? Well, I was taking those uh, mushrooms from Lost Highway. <laughs> that's right. No, that was acid. <laughs> oh, okay, my bad. So that was more of an acid freakout. I think <laughs> that's right. That's right. What what's up with the name Diane? By the way, good good point. Yeah, <laughs> you know, every time you see Diane and Valhalla Drive, are you not thinking of Kyle McLaughlin talking to his Agent Cooper talking to his uh, recorder? Diane, give me this blah 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 or whatever. Do you guys ever see that? Uh, I've got, I've got the Diane tapes that that cassette tape oh, yeah. that was released with, uh, and it had all the stuff from the show plus plus some extra Kyle McLaughlin uh, stuff on it that that I love to. I don't have a working tape player anymore, so I can't listen to. But I, I used to listen to that. Diane tape. Oh, oh, they released it just as the tapes. Yeah, oh, really? Oh, that is awesome. That is fantastic. I did not know that. Wow. And they released it right before the premiere of the second season. Mm-hmm. So there were a couple entries that took place after the second season started. Oh. So that was a, a really cool thing. I think there was even that recording that he makes where he says, Diane, do you know any really tall men? <laughs> and that was after he met the giant. Oh, I forget. Uh-oh. Was the 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 birds uh, Lara Lara? That that <laughs> oh, was on God. the tape, right? <laughs> I hope so. I think it was though. It's hurting me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Took me years to finally watch Laura and put all those Waldo Lidecker and Laura connections together. Does the Sylvia North story refer to any particular thing that we know of? There is a movie called Sylvia. And the main character in that is Sylvia West. That's as close as I could get. All right. And that was uh, Carol Baker. Um, I was not able to track down a copy of that and watch it in time. There's our, our homework for next time, right? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like you're slacking, Mike. Did you read all that stuff you had at Dark on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, I don't know, you're, you're kind of a machine. That's amazing. I was probably about halfway through it, and then the flight back definitely helped plow through some more stuff, especially because I was stuck on the tarmac for an extra hour. That helped. Mm. What, what were you reading? Uh, all those articles. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. That, that yeah. course pack, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I, I read through a lot of that. Not quite all of it, but some of it, I believe it or not, the Cinema Journal stuff I had already read because I subscribed to that to that journal. Oh, okay. So I already read those at least. But holy moly, I was I was looking through the Dropbox and I'm like, man, this guy, like, I could take some lessons over here and <laughs> how, how to host a podcast. Let me tell you, man, oh man. Well, for next week's show for Decoy, there's absolutely no reading about that <laughs> film that I could find. I could find like a little article when it came out, and then like the you know the Wikipedia for Mulholland Drive is as long as my arm. It might be as long as my leg. And it's just like, this is crazy. I did not read that. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> but I did go through years ago when I was still 
doing cashiers to cinema, I wrote an article where I was comparing the script to the pilot to the finished film, at least the script to the pilot. I, I think I put it in the finished film as well. And just all of the difference between those. And that was pretty uh, extensive as well. Cause like the Louise Bonner part was in the script, but it wasn't in the pilot, but then it was in the finished film, the Winkies part, the uh, Dan and Herb, they were in the, script they weren't in the pilot but they were in the finished film so there was so much of that kind of stuff and it got it got to the point where i was almost my my head just like reading about and and watching this movie so many times for this my head was just spinning by the end of it oh bet i'm guaranteed that there are at least a half a dozen people that have been listening to this episode and just screaming at us about like you missed this you missed that what about this what about that what about crying being in spanish <laughs> and no i banda and then it's it's uh adam and and uh camilla are talking in spanish at the party and i'm just like okay mm-hmm. yeah i mean we could get that crazy but you know come on we've been talking for almost two hours here <laughs> right yeah no doubt no doubt there's so much more we could do another two hours yeah yeah and not and not touch everything for that i might need those mushrooms <laughs> there you go <laughs> all right we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show i wanted money frankie Olin's had it he took it from a shiny red bank Two days before Christmas. Four hundred thousand dollars. Only before he could take it, he had to kill the driver. Frankie was in jail now. The people of the state of California said he had to die. But only Frankie knew where the money was hidden. I'd like to kill you. Dichotomy. What a beautiful word. Dichotomy. Economy. You're beautiful, Margot. So beautiful. You're the only thing I hate to leave. Maybe you won't have to, Frankie. What do you mean? Listen, and don't interrupt. As I said, we will be back next week with a discussion of Decoy to continue our Noir-Vember coverage. So kind of uh, giving myself a little bit of a break here with uh, Decoy. Not nearly as many things to read, a little bit easier. It's an hour and 15 minutes as opposed to what is uh, Mulholland Drive's like two and a half hours. So it's going to be a little simpler to talk about Decoy. Before we go, I want to thank this week's guest co-hosts, Jedediah and Eric. So, Jedediah, what have you been up to lately? Because nobody seems to have film podcasts, uh, I've been working on my own. But uh, actually, nobody seems to have the one I'm looking for, which is all about crime films. So uh, I'm working with a guy named Peter Dragovich. You may know as a writer going by the moniker, the nerd of noir. And we're gonna we're doing a crime-only film podcast. Not quite ready, but that that's coming real soon. Uh, my book of short stories called Courtesy, Sympathy, and Taste, or a Fuckload of Shorts is uh, being re-released shortly. Other than that, uh, 
just paying bills in completely non-riderly ways. So you're talking to the nerd of noir, and uh, Eric's going to be talking to the czar of That's noir right. coming up here. That's right, yeah. Yeah, if you want to hear me uh, ramble on some more about movies, uh, you can go to my uh, podcast uh, with a co-host with uh, two dear friends, uh, Nick Schlegel and Chris Gullen, all of us with PhDs in film studies. And uh, our next episode is going to be with the czar of noir, Eddie Muller. We're going to be talking about film noir. And then, uh, yeah, if you want to, if you go back into the uh, archives, we we talk about all kinds of crazy stuff. So it's, uh, if you want to hear me some more, that's where to go. That's a rap show.com. So, Jed, when is your show coming out? That's an excellent question. What's it uh, called? That's an excellent question. <laughs> that's not what it's called. Uh, yeah, we, that's, a good, that's a good title for a podcast, though. That, that would be a terrible title for ours, but yeah. Well, will you have me on when you do The Laughing Policeman? Yes, absolutely. I will have you on for uh, probably anything I can uh, snag you for. You know, I'll just get you in between reading... Uh, Reading an encyclopedia every week. Well, I look forward to it because I, I like what you do, so I'm I'm very curious to hear it. Uh, thanks, man. And I'm glad that that's rap is still going. I was afraid that Nick moving out of uh, town would would ruin the podcast. Yeah, well, Chris moved to Massachusetts. Uh, Nick moved to upstate New York, and I'm still here in Michigan. But uh, and we have been on a hiatus uh, for for several months while those guys get, uh, especially Nick gets adjusted. But uh, yeah, we're recording on Saturday for, uh, like I said, uh, for another film noir episode. It'll be our second, and uh, hopefully that will jumpstart a more regular schedule once again because we do have a lot of fun with that podcast. Well, it's a lot of fun to listen to. I highly recommend it. Yeah, and we had fun having you on, too. You were on uh, on an episode, and uh, we, we, had, we had a lot of fun with that. Well, thank you guys for coming on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also be able to find links over to Jed's books and Eric's podcasts and anything else that they want to plug. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and over to our Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access. Access to every episode. I should just quit saying donors get early <laughs> access because I haven't been timely at all, especially October doing two episodes a week. That just blew me completely out of the water. And the way that November is going, it might be another two episode a week kind of thing. So uh, just give us money through Patreon. How's that? And if you don't want to give us money, give us a review, give us a rating over at iTunes. That is cheap as in free. It's very easy to do as long as you have an iTunes account. So you can give the man your uh, information and, uh, you know, uh, just uh, have have uh, Apple own your life for the rest of your life. But, yeah, I appreciate it. Go on over there. Every rating, every review, every dollar that you give us helps the projection booth take over the world. Down.
por un tiempo volviendo a sonreír luego anoche te vi tu mano me tocó y el saludo de tu voz te hablé Sin saber que he estado llorando por tu amor, llorando por tu amor, luego de tu adiós sentí todo. Yo estoy llorando, yo que pensé que te olvidé, pero es verdad, es la verdad, que te quiero aún más, mucho más que ayer, dime tú qué puedo hacer. Siempre estaré llorando por tu amor, llorando por tu amor, tu amor se llevó todo. Y quedó llorando, 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 If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. 
Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.